Hello, my fellow Westorians. We are back. Welcome to another installment of the rabbit hole filled exploration of the world of ice and fire. We're having so much fun and we've only just gotten started. It's only episode three of this reread. And we've got a special guest today. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to History of Westeros podcast, co-author of The World of Ice and Fire, Elio M. Garcia Jr. Welcome, my friend. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, very exciting. Great to talk to you again after I think we last really spoke at Dublin. So it's yeah. <laughs> a great chance and, and, and Ash as well. So uh, no, fantastic. Thank you. Right on. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Um, I'm going to uh, praise you wholeheartedly and thoroughly here at the beginning. So hopefully we don't make you blush. You are one of the rare cases we could say where someone has sort of ascended from fan to, well, another level. <laughs> you started very early on. You found the books. Well, the book when it was just one book. Let's be clear. Uh, you've been around for a long time in the fandom and you not only are the co-author of the World of Ice and Fire, which is our main subject matter and the World of Ice and Fire app, by the way, y'all, that's a very useful thing. Not only it's a lot easier to carry around than that big book, but it has some of the winds of winter chapters in it, the, the pre-release chapters that we've reviewed on here and that are out elsewhere. So it's also nice for that purpose, as well as some other things, some things that are not in the World of Ice and Fire book. So quick reminder to check that out as well. But you're also the co-founder of Westeros.org, which is how I got started in the fandom. So that's particularly close to my heart and... Well, that's already that's a huge resume, but there's already more to say. Yeah. What what um just briefly, how did uh, Westeros.org come about and um anything you want to say about it? Well, the early uh, the books came out right at a time when the internet was becoming more accessible to people. Mm, so yeah. it wasn't just kids, it was like college accounts. You started having like AOL uh, would have, you know, an Earthlink and all these others showed up ISPs allow you to take the internet. And then fans discovered that hey, we could use the internet to discuss things with people who are in other states, in other cities, in other countries. Uh, so Linda kind of led me to the books, um, or the book. Um, <laughs> yeah, the book. <laughs> she really got me to read it. And, uh, and we got involved in the early fandom, basically, the, the earliest message boards, uh, Dragonstone, mm -hmm. uh, which was in Australia. And then uh, when that one died... Uh, someone named Ravanshi, that was her handle, made uh, a forum, and I became a moderator on that. And then when she went to medical school, she handed over that forum to me. And out of all of that, we decided to have our own website for the fandom to kind of cover news, to be a place for the game we were making based on Ice and Fire, but with George's permission, 
and uh, it just became like the hub for news information uh, the Sospeak Martin collection where people would send out the emails they got from George yeah. so everyone could have access to what he was saying and it you know we've been running it ever since uh, someone actually recently asked me the actual date of when we officially opened and oh. it was like I think it was like August 2000 oh wow something like that we had registered the site earlier and we had an earlier version that wasn't western it was like on zoom.com when it was early free website things but, uh, <laughs> wow the proper was 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 in august august or i think august 2000 is, is the actual date how weird is it that people newborns from august 2000 or grown college graduates now are reading this book <laughs> yeah they're looking like, at your website <laughs> sitting down to have a beer as they talk about it <laughs> no it's it, it, I, it makes one feel old older anyways and and you know we've had people who met through our forum through our you know who got we fell in love got married had kids those kids are now going off to college it's wild i feel it's a great privilege to have had a whatever role we had in providing that forum for people to meet up and but it, it does put things in perspective uh <laughs> at uh, time stops for no man it sure has gotten so much bigger i mean it's hard to have, I, it's it's hard to i'm sure you know like han solo you can imagine quite a lot but did you imagine it could ever have grown to this this size no no i mean yeah, what we had was like Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time was the series that was kind of like the model in a lot of ways mm -hmm. for the fandom because there was this uh, early Usenet news group. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows what Usenet is anymore. I barely remember it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a way for people to kind of create little areas where they could communicate and trade posts and topics about things. And so uh, that was the first real model. For, for it and it was pretty big but it wasn't as it didn't and it was bigger than ice and fire for a long time but obviously the tv show changed that and made it just yeah huge just in a way that balloon <laughs> explosion whatever word whatever adjective you could use them all so and that of course had a big impact on on all of us our you know having a the show created a lot more readers which in turn created a lot more people on the forums and on podcasts and things like that a lot of the podcast most of the podcasts didn't even exist back then we didn't exist until uh early season one late season one early season two in between something like that and um, yeah we were pretty unofficial then as well uh you also are uh the manager slash administrator owner i'm not sure what the right term is of are all those things of wiki of ice and fire which personally is <laughs> invaluable to us as as you know a reference material so that is, is fantastic. Now, how did that come about? Is that an offshoot of Westeros.org? Well, I, I, yes, basically. I mean, we, since we host Westeros on our own server, when we founded the wiki, it was basically out of necessity because at that point in time, the Wikipedia had had a, articles about Ice and Fire. It had like character articles. Oh. And, and basically there was this whole thing where administrators were removing what they called fan cruft oh. from Wikipedia. They were deleting stuff and saying this is this is you know a article about a tire of the fire is fine, but articles about all these characters and events it's not fine for the wiki. It's it's not what we're supposed to be about. So people, I guess people kind of asked us, can we help them set up a wiki just for ice and fire? We decided you know we have the resources, we have the time, so sure we'll do it. I mean we've been very hands off. We've run it. We've we've made sure that it can, and you know they. <laughs> When when uh, Game of Thrones came out, I mean, the major reason that um, 
the major reason over several seasons that the the forum and the website would crash was because of the witches <laughs> so much traffic. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I remember those I mean, crashes, uh, some of them anyway. Yeah, it, it took a long time to figure out how to manage it. Like, in the end, we had to kind of ramp up like three different servers and pull together all our resources to be able to make it work. So it's, it was really uh, just kind of out of necessity, I think. Mm. And uh, we've kept it up since then, and it's entirely fan edited i've contributed just very little other than making sure it runs and helping kind of resolve quite you know disputes at times about certain mm-hmm. things about how we do things mm. but otherwise it's been uh 100 the community so has been running it. did the concordance predate the wiki or did that come about afterwards oh yeah okay i was about to ask that no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> the concordance was uh now the concordance is one of those things that came out of there was a, a wheel of time concordance which was a proper concordance in the sense that if, if you know what a concordance is, a concordance is supposed to be an alphabetical listing. Mm-hmm. is organized alphabetically, and ours is not. Uh, <laughs> we just use term as a nod to them. But oh. no, I created that largely for our game. The idea is that we would kind of put all these little factual details in one place for our players to be able to refer to easily without having to go to the books. Or if they wanted to go and double-check, it would be a page. But I did that all manually hand entering into uh documents <laughs> and then eventually um across multiple html pages i don't know if wikipedia or media wiki the software existed and i had never heard of it i don't think uh when i started i didn't hmm. think of trying to set up a, a database or set up a wiki like that was an idea mm-hmm. like i'll set up a wiki to to put all this stuff in uh, in retrospect it probably would have made a lot more sense to just put it all into a wiki but yeah yeah, no, the Concordance is a very odd project. <laughs> uh, you know, I sent it to Anne Grohl and George mm-hmm. early on, and they actually uh, asked, you know, I gave it to George, and he told Anne about it, and asked for it, because they, they used it as a reference uh, early on when they were editing as well. So that, that was a positive thing, but it, it's, it's very much a, um, a weird fan labor of love, which I'm not sure is very useful for people, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was useful at the looking time. Looking through it when I when I first yeah. got into the series, because like yeah, there is the wiki, but there's something a little different about the concordance. Um, I don't know that I, re- I really got a kick out of. It's like yeah, it has that early feel to it. I mean, it's 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 like a founding document sort of. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 part of the history. Yeah, yeah. I'd say it's it's its own like scroll. It's like a scroll. Yeah, it's an ancient scroll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But those. But this is why I wanted to start with this. In part was because. This is how things grew. This is the beginning of what grew into the necessity for something like the world of ice and fire. Because you go back to those old interviews with George and he's like, no, the world building is I just write what I need for the story. Clearly, things have exceeded that at this point. He can't just keep it all in his head anymore. He can't just have a list. He can't just have right. It's just gotten bigger and bigger and nobody could keep it all in their heads. I mean, that's that's why we come here every week to talk about it or part of it or part of the reason anyway. So that's just fascinating. It really did. That that seminal line, the tale grew in the telling, is just incredibly yeah. apt uh, in a lot of ways, and this is one of them. Yeah. So one of the things we like to do at the beginning of every show, it's an odd thing, Elio, is we like to sh- let Sean do his best Aryan Bright Flame impression and tell us what very odd beverage he's drinking today. <laughs> this is the... I think it might be similar to one I had last week or a couple weeks ago. The naked drink, the blue or the berry protein naked drink mixed with bang. A new discovery. <laughs> More, bang. More bang. Yes, this is the blue raspberry bang, <laughs> which is a sugar-free 
energy drink that we discovered from this show called How To with John Wilson. It's a kind of comedic documentary show. But anyway, <laughs> I've got my caffeine. I've got my nutrients. I have, I have less sugar than normal. A little carbonation. It's, it's so it's good. It's a healthy drink for Sean. I, it's like 10 years from now, Sean's going to be like running out of ideas. It's going to be like one of those things where like YouTubers that just like keep having to go farther and farther to like stay relevant. He's like, now I put gasoline and uh, gravel and... And goat milk. Yeah, and goat milk and the, the, the blood of a baby carried off by a vulture. Oh, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, also shout out while we're... Since we mentioned the Wiki of Ice and Fire, I want to give a shout out to our, our friend Rainy Targaryen, who is one of the editors over there, uh, Does a lot has contributed quite a lot to the Wiki, and has also contributed to History of Westeros podcast on a good bit of our scripted episodes. We've had her check things out and make sure we haven't made any mistakes, and that's worked out very well. Also, shout out to Nina, Good Queen Alley, 1L, at .tumblr.com, providing excellent notes, as always. Elia, you mentioned that the last time we saw each other was in Ireland, and yeah, that was a lot of fun. We got to hang out for TitanCon, and that's really when uh, George is really in his element in places like that because he becomes such a, a celebrity. But when you go to a small convention like that, he gets to still kind of be a fan, sort of like the rest of us, sort of like the rest of us. I mean, he's never not going to be George R. R. Martin, but it's he gets to be back with his roots, and that's where he. Yeah. has a lot more fun and do you recall how discussing a vagar <laughs> the color of vagar at lunch with him <laughs> yes no no that was great fun uh that that really is his element i mean i remember this from um the first world call when we went to in glasgow and just uh, it was breakfast time and we were all waiting for george to read from it must have been from a dance of dragons okay and uh he was getting breakfast and we all just sat around him while he was then chatted with him while he was being breakfast. So it was the same kind of thing. When I went in there to the, uh, was the Hilton? Is that the hotel there? Into that area, the restaurant or whatever. And there was George and there were you guys and a few other fans <laughs> was just fun. hanging out with him and say, so just sat down and joined you all. And yeah, it was great fun. And I, I know he did it several times. Uh, that's, that's he, that's what he loves when he can just be at a convention a small convention and it's just and it's not like all these people gawking at him it's just like oh it's george um, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you still have people coming by who wanted to you know say things or get autographs or photos or whatever but for the most part it was a lot more uh, of a calm situation for him yeah. and i think he really enjoyed that yeah yeah it was really fun and you, you could tell he just had that smile all the time <laughs> so folks what we're going to do today and we've been talking about community stuff we've talking about history meta history and and elia's large contributions to this fandom we're going to talk a little more about process and george and the creation of this book but we're going to try to stick mostly to in-world stuff throughout this episode you know the bulk of this episode we're going to geek out on the material itself you know one reason for that is that elio you've been interviewed about this book a few times already we don't want to repeat what's been said we're going to show we're going to give links to people to see the other places you've been interviewed for other coverage of this but we don't want to cover ground that's been covered before and you're a fan first of all after all we just explored that how you got started so and that's what we are so that's uh, where we'll keep our focus it's so cool that you are or half of anyway, however you want to frame it, Maester Yandel. Yeah. <laughs> That's so neat. How did that? Yeah. How did that come about? This idea of you actually being an in-world Maester and and anything else you want to tell us, like the name. How did the name yeah, Yandel how, that, come this about? This is my big question: Is yeah. how did the name? Did you guys come up with the name Yandel? Did George? Is it a reference to something? Tell us more. 
I, I yes. Uh, so the, the the conceit actually came up when we had our first proper sit down meeting of George and Anne Grohl at the Los Angeles or the Anaheim Worldcon in 2006. That's where we got the contract to sign and, and everything. And we talked about it. And one of the things George said, and it, it was over breakfast at the convention, said like he was really concerned about having a, like an omniscient perspective in the book that kind of knows everything and just lays it out. He wanted something where, where there could be misinformation, there could be things that are wrong or things that are unexplained or things that have ambiguity and and we as you know i mentioned we came out from the wheel of time fandom uh prior to coming uh ties of fire yeah and the wheel of time fandom had gotten its own um the world of robert jordan's wheel of time or also known as the the big white book of bad art george actually yeah. referenced it when we were discussing it because he said you know he wanted art he didn't want it to be like <laughs> the, the Jordan book it was known as the big bad book of art because it, it and it's a long story. It's not the artist's fault. Tor shortchanged him, and Jordan was really upset about it. But uh, in any case, it's so weird. Um, yeah. So we propose in that book. That book uses a perspective of a, of a scholar writing about the setting. Mm. So that allowed that conceit of well, there could be things that are wrong. There could be things that are uh, are unclear. And we thought, well, we it's perfect. We have maesters. We'll say it's a maester writing it, or we'll say it's a maester. Or several maesters writing it and that's where it kind of came the idea came where we would have our maester and then george would have his own maester and the idea is sometimes they would have initially the idea is that there might be different perspectives from these maesters in particular like on magic george had this idea about one yeah. his his character who wasn't named yet it was came later of a name but his maester would would be i think anti-magic oh. and <laughs> uh what i had already said and then uh, yandel would be Pro magic, huh. uh, but that kind of filtered away. That wasn't really a thing per se. I think Yandel became, as you can, if you read it closely, he's constantly kind of, you know, magic existed once; it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And 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 you know. he downplays it. Yeah. Um, mm. As to his name, uh, E Andel, E Andel mm. is how I say it. It's oh. an odd use of the Y. Oh, e -E -E. Okay. And L Elio oh, and Linda. There we go. Oh. There we go. Yeah. We, we looked at it, we're like, we, this has to be a reference, but what? Okay. We missed that. We, we thought maybe there was your name or her name or your names were in there somehow. We did not figure yeah. that out. That's yeah, there cool. was yeah I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm abusing that Y as a vowel a little bit. <laughs> so that's yeah. not a, a hint at how to pronounce Yarnwood. <laughs> no. Eron. E yeah, that's Ironwood for sure. Yeah, um, <laughs> but that said, um, and when I mentioned it to George, I I mentioned uh, I had gotten the idea from uh, a pair of brothers who wrote together uh, science fiction in I think like the 30s or 40s or 50s at uh, E and O Binder and hmm. it was Ernst and Otto Binder and so they wrote together as E and O Binder huh. so George George liked that because you know he loves his science fiction and his history, <laughs> <Yeah>. so. Uh, <laughs> Gilding, I can't tell you where Gilding. That just George just came up with that one. Just Gilding, um, cool. <laughs> just yeah. from the mind of George, right on. That's so cool. Yeah, we love this. So this this opening passage, we'll we'll have a little fun with it. I was a foundling from my birth in the tenth year of the reign of the last Targaryen king, left on a morning in an empty stall in the scribe's hearth, where acolytes practiced the art of letters for those who had need. The course of my life was set that day when I was found by an acolyte who took me to the seneschal of that year, Archmaester Edrin, 
Edgerin, whose ring and rod and mask were silver, looked upon my squalling face and announced that I might prove of use. When first told this as a boy, I took it to mean that he foresaw my destiny as a maester. Only much later did I come to learn from Archmaester Ebros that Edgerin was writing a treatise on the swaddling of infants and wished to test certain theories. <laughs> so we discussed this from a different angle at the beginning, because uh, it's right here at the beginning of the book. But is there anything about this this passage you can tell us or anything? Because it just seems kind of like George is having a bit of fun with that. Like he's he's maybe teasing a little bit. <laughs> uh, well, uh... <laughs> I I, uh, I I wish I could credit George, but I that was hundred percent Linda and I. Oh, very good. Nice, <laughs> heck uh, yeah. We tried to capture there. I, I I thought for I would try to capture George's sense of humor somewhere. Well, uh, worked on I, me. I, I thought it was him. <laughs> yeah. No, no, thank you. I, I I really tried. I thought that was a funny joke. Uh, the name Edgarin, uh that's uh, that's a very medieval, French medieval name. It is okay. Edgarin. Just, uh, we, we talked about this in a previous yeah. week. Aziz said Edgarin and I said Edgarin, and so I went with his pronunciation, but you, I was right. Shea wins this round. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, it's a, very, oh, it's a real name. That's cool. All right, we're is clarifying yep, so yep. many things here. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's stated sort of in interviews and other places that you all were responsible for uh, parts of this book and in particular some of the archmaesters and names of books and things like that but yeah this is a good example that we didn't intend but it serves very well as an example of a part that you wrote that that speaks in george's voice but it's your character so it also makes sense that it's coming yeah. from you <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that is that's great. I, I love that we stumbled on it that way. <laughs> What's your thoughts on like Inworld? Speaking from an Inworld perspective, when did so Yandel was he present? He finished the book in a few years before uh, Robert's death, if, my, if, if that's right. And then, but when do you think he started it? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I it was kind of funny. I was thinking about this, and and I, I saw. I mean, you know, I don't. I'm sure your viewers know you have a document with kind of it's a rough outline of things yeah. that made me think a bit because uh, one of the I ideas I've always said is you know the idea that Yandel wants to present it to Robert or he goes to King's Landing he's waiting to present it to the king and hopes that the king will like it and that'll lead to people copying it and, and disseminating it and that's his, his great goal and then obviously the joke is he has to scratch out Robert's name and Robert dies and then he has to scratch out Joffrey's <laughs> name and Joffrey dies and he's still there and George asks you know, what do I think Yandel is doing now? I said, like, he's still waiting for someone to see him and, and receive the book and tell him it's good. Uh, but I, I, the thing that in my head is, how does he afford to stick around? Yeah, you know, the Citadel's uh, not paying for him to be there, are money? they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, Marwin can take off to the east. Uh, did he trade his skill as a healer and, oh. and, and his knowledge? So, I mean, is Yandel, like, going out every morning... You know, treating merchants and scribing, you know, copying notes for people. Is he being or, put or up by Pycelle? Maybe so there's he's like a freelance quarters maester? for maester visitors. Oh. Well, not by Pycelle anymore. I, but. My thought is that, yeah, he's a maester who, from the Citadel who who was at the Citadel and had decided once he had this done, he was going to take off. And um, oh. so somehow he must have put together a little bit of money and has decided, you know, to, to chance this thing. But I imagine when he did it, I, I really don't have a great sense of it. I, I haven't, I admit, I haven't really thought that far about it. I don't want to give a date and people say, oh, it's, that's too fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, what I would say is my idea was always that when he found Gildane's material is what kind of really sparked his interest. Mm. 
Uh, now, of course, there has been a change in Gildane's material between the publication of The Wilderness of Fire and Fire and Blood. Yes. Namely that when we wrote The Wilderness of Fire, George had basically agreed with the idea that Gildane had, was a dead person uh, and had died uh, well before the time of Robert Baratheon. Uh, but when Fire and Blood became a thing, he decided that uh, you know it would it, it would be easiest for him to stick to that voice. So Gildane has become someone who is very much still alive. So uh, we have made some adjustments to later editions to try and make it mesh. I think at least we we submitted them. I can't recall if they've actually gone through to try and make it mesh better. But uh, in any case, my idea is still that that inspired him anyways. This Archmage Gildane's work on the history of Targaryens. And he thought, that's all well and good, but how about something more general hmm. aimed for people who came out of similar circumstances? The Andalus was a foundling, probably of impoverished background, but he doesn't know his parents, but he must assume they were probably impoverished people. Uh, and, and what hope would they have of hearing about all these great things and learning these things unless someone writes a general history for them? That is so cool. We we appreciate that a lot because, yeah, most history books, especially in a medieval setting, are not written for the common folk. They're written for their no. patrons, the ones who paid for it to be made in the first place or what have you, exactly. or, or to yeah. make it flattering about them. It's, yeah, it's something. Yeah, I, I appreciate it a lot, too, because George has talked so much about how he likes popular histories and how he likes, you know, playing with that concept of what, what goes down into the popular history versus the, you know, more legitimate histories and all that. And this is a great example of it. Yeah. I wonder if Yandel ever would have interacted with Alicia Thorne waiting to. <laughs> yeah, just... Oh my goodness, that's a great question. <laughs> not, not very possibly. I doubt Thor would have given, uh, much time for uh, a maester wearing a chain. I have to imagine he would look down on someone like that. It's all about yeah. quills and. Yandel might have been scrolls. like, what you got in that jar there? What is that? <laughs> it's like, is that a hand? What? Why do you have that? <laughs> like, shut up, maester. Get out of my face. <laughs> but, you know, that's really neat, though. Also, his inspiration, because that's kind of how I got inspired. I'm going to, you know, praise you again. But when I came to Westeros.org, the forums for the first time, I've told my listeners this or listeners out there so many times, but. I felt like Jon Snow. I was like, oh boy, I know nothing. Because I had, I didn't even know R plus L equals J when I came to the forums. I had all these other ideas, but once I realized I didn't even know that basic thing, I'm like, all right, mm -hmm. dial it back. <laughs> Need to do some reading and learning here. And But that was inspiring. It was like, wow, there is so much here. And that's how I feel like Yandel, yeah. you know, he's like, wow, this is really interesting. This is inspiring to me. Other people will be inspired by this. And well, that's part of why we're all here. We We love learning. We love... Um, this sort of exercise, this sort of experience, this sort of imagining. No, a little bit of a tangent, but I do want to point out the idea that, uh, I guess a couple of connected ideas. One is that the idea of something is really good. It can't really be spoiled. No, knowing mm. what's going to happen in doesn't like ruin the story, right? So I think that's important in general. And in, in the context of like how big this world and this story have gotten, it's hard for someone to come in not knowing anything, you know? And even I coming into Game of Thrones, you know, watching the TV show, Aziz and, you know, several of our friends, my circle, people at work had read these books and would have discussions. They, they were like passionate discussions about characters that people never heard of. But I just knew that Jamie 
was a favorite of several of my friends. And so when I start watching the show, and he's kind of this arrogant, <laughs> like, why jerky, do people like, like push this guy? Of, his, I, I just knew there had to be more to it. Ah, Does yes, that make sense? Yes, There's yes. no yeah. way he's just this one-sided evil villain when he's a favorite character of some of my friends. So anyway, just a neat idea that sometimes having little hints of knowledge about something can actually add greater value or curiosity, can cause you to dig deeper, et cetera. So. And it's great there are resources out there to do that with. You know, there's definitely much more depth to the story than what's on the surface. It's something mm. that's part of why it's so successful. People read it multiple times because there is so much more than just on the surface. And even the surface is pretty freaking entertaining. So. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> good, good said, Sean. Good said. One of the many, many rabbit holes this book provides to us, small and large, was this, this concept of adoption. I, I want to spend just a few minutes on this. You mentioned that it's very likely uh, Yandel. I, I can't pr get myself used to this other pronunciation. <laughs> It'll take so, me a while. Any pronunciation you want, <laughs> nice like George says. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, just, yeah, that's yeah. true. That's one of our favorite things to quote that George says. Adoptions. Like you said, he was probably come from an impoverished family. That's tr That makes sense. After all, lordly families have so much money even the poor ones can afford one extra mouth to feed most of the times maybe not like a real minor house but in in dire straits but generally speaking one more baby around isn't going to make a big difference but to a more typical common born family that's a huge difference but i don't imagine leaving kids at the citadel is super common maybe it's more common in old town we we briefly brought this up just as a question that we can't expect to have an answer on but i wondered if you have any thoughts on this elio because certainly adoption is a big part of the story given john <laughs> and then griff young griff yeah. illyrio Tyrion probably isn't adopted but but that subject comes up so it's still relevant even if that's just a dead theory or a, or a missed theory right I, I can't give like a definitive answer on it because that's i mean george liked what we did with Yandel and his his history, so it must be at least plausible enough. But my with the bit with uh, Ebros kind of noting that Edgarin wanted to use him for some experiments, basically, uh, my take would be that usually, if anyone tries to leave a child to the Citadel, it's very it's fairly rare that they're actually kept. But they probably pass them on to some mother house or some orphanage or or something. They don't. I don't think it, they they make a habit of taking in infants because that's that's a lot of uh, effort they're gonna have to have servants taking care of them yeah. raising them to a certain point where they can become useful especially um, when so there's no women probably... allowed at the yeah, citadel yeah. right so who's gonna yeah. breastfeed so, uh, or the yeah. yeah i mean goat's milk I, I i gather works but um they're gonna have uh they allow uh, women goats but uh, yeah, so I, I figure it's fairly rare. It, it is unusual. Yeah, it, it would be unusual. We were given that he's probably in King's Landing, like you said. We were wondering uh, if he ever, if there's a chance he would pop up, just like in a one line in one of the books. We thought maybe he could pop up at the Citadel. Maybe Sam could run into him. Um, but if he's in King's Landing, I guess that wouldn't happen. But maybe he's forced to go back. I mean, it could be what more. Prologue. It could be more than one. I'm just saying, <laughs> like at least you one. You mean he wasn't dead? <laughs> one line would do a lot for us. Well. We would want more, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would be yeah, worth it. It would be worth him work. giving his life. Well, for I mean, George, George did the kind of when I said the story that he was while he hanging around King's Landing waiting to present the book is, and and you know he kind of smiled and said, 
and you think you'll keep his head? <laughs> <laughs> he might so, want to leave. Uh, <laughs> Prologue might be on, might be on, on point there. <laughs> and uh, maybe he does. It's it's unsafe in King's Landing, especially with uh, you know the Griff and all that business happening and. Cersei getting a little even more dangerous, but heck, if there's a faceless man in the Citadel, it's not exactly safe there either. So, or if Euron's about to yeah. come, I mean, there's really no place safe, and even for the Maesters, life isn't safe in Westeros these days. No, especially with the uh, the compromises he made on the history of the rebellion and so on. It, it, there might be some people very unhappy oh. with with him if they actually looked at it. He might not have been safer without compromise, so. <laughs> no, it, no, it was Damned if he of, does, uh, damned if he doesn't. <laughs> exactly. That's true, that's true. Okay, well, let's get to the coming of the first men. Elio is a big fan of Dorne, and it's the first place that people crossing the land bridge from Essos to Westeros would get to, so it's a pretty nice convergence for us. Let's start off with this excellent quote from the book. Anywhere from 8,000 to 12,000 years ago, in the southernmost reaches of Westeros, a new people crossed the strip of land that bridged the narrow sea and connected the eastern lands with the land in which the children and giants lived. It was here that the first man came into Dorne via the broken arm, which was not yet broken. Why these people left their homelands is lost to all knowing, but when they came, they came in force. Thousands entered and began to settle the lands, and as the decades passed, they pushed farther and farther north. Such tales as we have of those migratory days are not to be trusted, for they suggest that within a few short years, the first men had moved beyond the neck into the north. Yet, in truth, it would have taken decades, even centuries, for this to occur. What does seem to be accurate from all the tales, however, is the first men soon came to war with the children of the forest. Unlike the children, the first men farmed the land and raised up ring forts and villages, and in doing so, they took to chopping down the weirwood trees, including those with carved faces, and for this, the children attacked them leading to hundreds of years of war. Yeah, so that's pretty scary. Like, imagine you're, from either perspective, we've talked about it from the children's perspective, but let's talk about it from the first men's perspective. You're crossing over, you, for whatever reason, that part is lost to history. There's a decent chance it's climate change or war or both, um, following the herds, etc. But it's also possible some people even settled on the arm for a while, which is a nice little interesting side thing to imagine. But coming across, yeah, you, they'd find these very mysterious trees and eventually they'd come into direct contact with the children. And I wonder things like what caused the how did it go at first? Right. Like there's definitely chopping down of the trees. That may have been the, the thing that started the conflict. But I doubt it was just immediately humans started crossing Lambridge and just immediately started chopping down werewoods targeting them. There was probably some cut down pretty soon, pretty quickly. But I wonder how quickly this all devolved or how quickly it got out of hand. And and looking at it from the other angle, there's lots of stories of positive interactions. There's trade. There's, you know, going farther down the line, there's obviously shared religion. That comes, you know, after the pact, I suppose, or maybe before. So within all this, Elia, this is one of the most fascinating points of history, and it's also one of the most mysterious. When this part of the book was being written, what was going through your mind? What kind of things were you trying to get out of it? Or whatever you want to say about this stuff, uh, we'd love to hear. Yeah, uh, we really used uh, quite heavily uh, Maester Lewin's account mm. in uh, Game of Thrones to Bran and, and Rickon about uh, the history there. And um, we, we talked a bit with George about it. But yeah, he... 
he didn't want to reveal too much. So that, that materials mm-hmm. us basically. I mean, obviously he, he signed off on it. He looked at it, and this is a this is a Maester's account, and it's a it's it's as plausible an account as any other Maester's of, of how it went. I mean, obviously in my mind, you have to look a lot about the, the discovery of a new world from the European perspective and the sort of the early colonials, their, their first contacts with the indigenous peoples. Uh, you could go further back, of course, to the, the Vikings having come across mm-hmm. uh, the Skraelings in Greenland and Vinland, as they called them, uh, and those interactions. And so we, we I, I would suppose that at first it's a lot like, it's probably a very careful entry to begin with. You're kind of, you're in a completely new place, you know, you're running or you're doing, for whatever reason, you come here, you've been pushed here, have chosen to come here. There's surely plenty of land for everybody to begin with, but I, I would guess the first conflict would probably come when people not knowing that those carved trees mattered yeah. and just chopping them down. And then, and that would probably start the first conflicts. And then maybe they start burning, oh, no, these trees matter to these children, mm-hmm. uh, as we call them. And like, for example, here's an interesting, probably, let me throw yeah. something out at you. There would have been a difficulty for the first men, even very early on, even understanding why necess- necessarily the children were coming after them. They're cutting down these trees, but they don't necessarily yeah. know that's the cause and effect. The children obviously are like, they're cutting down our trees. This must stop. This, right. is, this is our life. This is our re- This is our religion, our everything. Yeah. Our, our memories. Um, you really wonder how that was communicated. Like they point at the tree saying, don't do that, you know, say stop or something like that. They don't even have a language yeah. to, hmm, that would have been very difficult. Another challenge would be, even if they are able to communicate to that, to them, do they communicate it to all of them all at once? Yeah, right. You know? Yeah, this is- Imagine an, like no, waves are coming across and maybe enough to settle and have some sort of leadership, some sort of meeting with the children of the forest. But eventually more people come and a generation yeah. pass and more of them travel farther north and interact with new children of the forest. And they don't. And so you can see how the children of the forest as a whole just start to think of all these newcomers are chopping down our trees. It's bad. We have to stop. Yeah, they probably, and they're not distinguishing between who's new and who got talked to or whatever. They probably I mean. don't have a great conception of difficulty to communicate the children, considering mm. how they can just communicate with each other. They don't yeah. understand the very concept that all the first men can't mm. reach each other. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. They, they must know and they're doing this anyway. And so they attack them. And so eventually yeah. the first men also feel the same thing. All these children attack us. It did, even if we stop chopping down our trees, they attack us anyway. You know, like, so you could see yeah. how this would just perpetuate itself. Even once they got past the tree thing, there's still going to be retribution for my uncle that you kill or my child <laughs> yeah. or on and on. You know, I think about that a well, lot, like you know, the conflict in, I don't know, I don't want to get too political, but like whenever some Palestine makes some treaty with Israel whatever those leaders decide, it doesn't affect the kid on the street whose dad was killed last week in a bombing. You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. That's true. Right. Yeah, also, I mean, the, this is the tree thing, obviously at a certain point, once it starts getting really ugly, I mean, they're, they start deliberately cutting down the trees mm. because they have us we're seeing from the eyes they are able to spy on us. So we're, we're attacking the trees to deny them that. And that just kind of perpetuates it even more and makes it even hotter. So uh, the pact was, I think very important, but you know, before that we have, you know, the children raising their magic allegedly to to break the bridge too late, but they they tried to bring down the hammer of the waters, and obviously Yandel has various maesters sort of speculations about what really happened or how it really worked, and so yeah, on. Yeah, it's super neat. I like that. We'll 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 get to that pretty soon. The um, 
one other thing that I think is really fascinating to think about is like there's since the children didn't build much in the way of structures other than their little tree towns, which may have gone unnoticed by a lot of humans. Certainly people wouldn't have seen much inside the caves. The carved werewoods would be the only sign of any sort of habitation by any other being that I can think of, unless there are, I know other, with the exception of very rare things like the possibility that the sea stone chair was already there. But aside from exceptions like that, that's just really spooky. You come into a new land and there's yeah. carved trees and there's no, but there's no people anywhere. You're like, well, who did that? We can also yeah. forget that there was also prehistoric version of animal. Yeah. Giants, huge lions. Well, actually let's, let's have the next quote because they're mentioned in here. The first men who had brought with them strange gods, horses, cattle, and weapons of bronze were also larger and stronger than the children. And so they were a significant threat. The hunters among the children, their wood dancers, became their warriors as well. But for all their secret arts of tree and leaf, they could only slow the first men to their advance. The green seers, green seers employ their arts, and tales say that they could call the beasts of marsh, forest, and air to fight on their behalf. Dire wolves as monstrous as snow bears, cave lions <laughs> and eagles, mammoths and serpents, and more. So there's a lot of nasty-sounding animals, and if they're being controlled directly with a higher intelligence, then they're pretty deadly. Now, of course, it's hard to have full armies of that. This is why I was, you know, more piecemeal. But that's terrifying, too. I mean, think about the prologue to A Dance with Dragons with Varamir, where when Varamir's dad didn't know which of their dogs killed his brother. And so he killed all the dogs. That really, that's a haunting scene because anyone who loves dogs, which is, heck, most of us, that's really sad. You also kind of have to understand from the parents' perspective, like, I don't know which of these dogs killed my kid, but I can't take that risk. You kind of understand where he's coming from. But if, if you have children doing that on purpose as a weapon, like Varamir didn't know what he was doing. He was a kid that was kind of, well, he's a kind of a sociopath kid, but still he didn't necessarily have motive before all this like i'm going to slip into this dog skin and kill my brother that wasn't necessarily what he set out to do it's what happened but with green seers in this prehistoric era would people even be able to trust their dogs I, it's just kind of hard it's like really sad to think about that like all the animals were potentially traitors <laughs> or or weapons yeah. for the children wow no that's a that's a great point actually i never really thought about that that it's, yeah, a green seer can slip into the skin of your your horse, your dog, and, uh, you know, who knows how often they might have, you know, thrown some chieftain off their horse. Oh, that's a great point. Uh, yeah. Trampled them, things like that, that, you know, that, and then, you know, because mostly what we hear from Lewin is, you know, their, their darts, their stone darts, uh, arrows coming out of the forest and so on. But, uh, yeah, I could have seen the green seers doing things like that. And that would have been very frightening, especially since we have no real sign that the first men had any any magic of that type obviously there's the whole thing about the runes and rune armor and so on but we don't really know um too well about about that side of things yeah i wonder if they would have like called on their gods that hardly exist anymore we only hear about them briefly in this book um is one place we do yeah. hear about them yeah. these these old sea gods and wind gods and nature gods that they worship that don't even have names anymore they would be beseeching them for help or for <laughs> some sort of insight or yeah. what do we do yeah, that's really interesting to consider. And it, and it we let's take that a little bit farther. Think about when Bran was injured, when he fell. Now, he's he's maybe different because of his blood uh, and his heritage. But 
I wonder if that's another thing that, as a weapon, they maybe tried to do some, I don't know, Freddy Krueger stuff, getting into people's dreams <laughs> and trying to, like, mess with them. I don't know if that's even possible, yeah. but, like, for children, it might be more possible. And I mean, when I say children, I mean young humans. I mean, like, getting into their head because yeah. they're a little more impressionable. They're not as disciplined and mind-wise. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah, that would be actually uh, <laughs> interesting. Obviously, as I say, it's the heritage side where any person can have their dreams invaded or if you need to be magically attuned or whatever you want to say. Uh, that's a question. But uh, no, I could see about it. If, I mean, if their first men had their own magicians and sorcerers or shamans who had magical potential or whatever, then, then they might have been vulnerable to, to something like that. Another example of this is when we see one thing we've talked about a lot is the sort of parallelism that goes along in, in a lot of the forms of magic that exist in this world. There's versions of prophecy that seem to be fire magic oriented and there's, you know, and there's versions of looking into the future that seem to come from the old God slash ice side. There's two different there's raising dead and there's resurrections. There's lots of examples of this. And the parallel here would, I suppose, be what we learn about glass candles and being told that they can be used to enter someone's mind or to send messages from far away. And there's a lot of theories out there that that might be what's happening with Danny, which is why she keeps seeing Quaith and things like that. Certainly, it's set up if that's what if that's what we're really seeing with all that. It, the, the mechanism has sort of been established that entering dreams is possible we don't necessarily understand all the circumstances bran yeah. and danny are both very magical people so like you said it might be an attunement thing for example in hp lovecraft what he does is he says that certain when there's like <laughs> cthulhu is sending out like evil thoughts yeah. out into the world the sensitive people pick them up in their dreams it doesn't not, not everyone has these dreams but the like the the artists and the the dreamers the people of a certain disposition so in this setting it would be could go a little farther with that. I like your phrase, magical attunement. That's a good word for it. <laughs> so that would be like an existential threat, just this. These, they can get in our dreams. They can steal our animals. So that would probably drive them to, pre pretty, to be pretty vicious, to be like, wow, we really need to kill these beings because they're so dangerous. They're such a threat to us. On the other hand, we keep coming back to this thing about trade let's let's move on to a little discussion of this uh, we've got another quote from uh, maester Eamon, or referencing maester Eamon anyway the archives of the citadel contain a letter from maester Eamon sent in the early years of the reign of aegon v which reports on such an account from a ranger named redwin written in the days of king doran stark it recounts a journey to lorne point and the frozen shore in which it is claimed that the ranger and his companions fought fought giants, and traded with the children of the forest. Amos' letter claims that he had found many such accounts in his examinations of the archives, the watch at Castle Black, and considered them credible. Hmm. So, Elio, what do you? What about Maester Eamon, as far as, like you said, you used some of Maester uh, Lewin's stuff. Was, was Maester Eamon a big part of your consideration, or at least um, how did he factor in here? Sure. I mean, we, we pulled in... Uh, because of the my work on the concordance, I kind of knew where all this stuff was. Mm. So uh, mm -hmm. that, that big part of it was pulling together all the historical things, all the references, and so actually, like the first outline of the world book, well, of the the world book as published was basically each section was just filled with sections of the concordance to have all the notes in one place, and I would use that to kind of guide of how to shape it, and you know, 
places where there'd be gaps or, or places where we could fill in or ask George to fill in something. But uh, so yeah, Samuel's stuff in, uh, in the Clash of Kings, mentioning that was absolutely a, a part of it. We we absolutely mine things from that. Um, That's cool. Yeah, it was fun to, to, to kind of do things that way and kind of find where we could kind of just lay things together in one place for in this matrix perspective, but it organized in a similar way as the concordance is mm. um, to make it more useful to people, but at the same time kind of give a shape to the whole project. Right on. It, it's pretty easy in my mind to reconcile the idea that there would have been conflict with the children and also trade with the children. Just one, the children and the first men weren't homogenous you know there's i assume there's got to be many factions and cultures within the children across the whole continuation continent different continuation uh, that's terrains <laughs> continuation yeah i mean even like you can imagine we even know remember when we did the little i don't know interview with michael clarfeld's class in germany yeah and they just had this idea that americans all have guns yeah <laughs> like, well a lot of americans have guns but not all of them yeah. you know so quite a few don't uh, and the, the farther you get from it the more homogenized it's going to become, right? The, yes. the, the more, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we think of, I mean, I think we're a little better now, but for a long time, it was just the Indians, right? Yes. As Native Americans. But we know now there's such a huge difference between the Sioux and the Comanche. And even within the Sioux, there's different factions and beliefs oh, yeah. and on and on and on. It's a, and again, like I said earlier, you can imagine a wave of first men come across. There's some conflict. It's communicated to them. Hey, don't chop down his werewolf trees. They stop. Then a new wave of first men come and they might've even been warned. Hey, don't chop down. It's just, ah, whatever. We're going North. We're going to do what we want. And already. And so those two mm. factions, if you will, first men might be in conflict. One faction of children might start attacking the new first men where another faction says, no, it's not their fault. You know, you, but all those detailed histories and subtleties, are going to be lost yeah right in history no, that, even no. though one group might have been trading with the children and might have continued an alliance for a thousand years but yeah it's it's hard to know how all the details have played that out we don't have histories of it but you got to assume there's got to be more to it than that than, than the little bits that we know so, yeah absolutely well point sean well point it's funny nina brings up the note here that sam mentions this reference in uh, in the Clash right. of Kings, which which you pointed out, I wanted to be clear on that. It's, and he's of course lovingly, you know, he's like, "This is such a great thing. This book is so valuable." I mean, heck, that's how I would treat it too. I'm sure <laughs> you guys probably would too. Like, this is this is an invaluable treasure. But it's neat to think about how this came about. Like, this is a more recent thing. Obviously, this this account of someone named Redwin. We don't know how long ago it was, but it's couldn't. It could be quite a while ago. It could be a thousand years ago, but it certainly wasn't. 12,000 years ago. It wasn't before. It wasn't this era that we're talking about. So it's possible that the trading between the children and humanity took a lot longer to develop, but yeah, maybe uh, not. I admit, I, 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 I imagine that as, that account is a post-pact yeah. account. Yeah. When, when relations are a lot better between men and, and, and we, we certainly we have obviously that it's, it's the, the night's watch is established as post long night. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 that's my take on it. Right. On. Uh, but I, I couldn't say when. I, I know one of the questions is about like when Goran lived. I, I can say that George's family tree for the Starks doesn't go, at least what he's shared with us doesn't go past Torhan. Yeah. <laughs> king who knows? So, so he did not bother. So all those kings that get mentioned from being from further back are they only George has a good sense 
if any sense yeah. of uh, <laughs> where they fit together. Uh, he, I think he often throws out cool names and cool bits of history, and he doesn't. I'll figure out when I need to. Yeah, uh, where they fit into the timeline. Yeah, if he's just tossing it into a, a stack of unexplored Starks, he doesn't have to worry about it too much. Once he, you know, once once he gets into yeah. an area where he's defined more, then he has to be a little more cautious. Like you can't just casually add a Targaryen at this point. Like that's not. <laughs> but you can no. you can make an ancient Stark, no problem. I was going to say, I imagine it's a challenge for George to discipline his thoughts to not let himself go off too much on one character or time period when he's trying to focus on a different one i mean that's got to be a maybe a general writing challenge to keep the right focus well that's a great pivot actually sean because elio from from interviews we've read he did kind of just at some points like without the restraints of characters and and the themes that he had been working with and he was able to just kind of go off and just you kind of get to maybe you get the impression that some of this was really built up and he was really ready to let it all out or, or would you frame it differently or what do you think? Like, I mean, we, he's had Targaryen family trees for decades uh, before fire and blood. I mean, he, the first one we saw was, I think we told people like 2001 or Mm. something, I think is the first one we saw, but George had had said like, I had just finished it and it's, it's fairly similar, but there's some distinct differences from the final. Uh, and even 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 between the Royal of Fire and and Fire of Blood, there are changes. George changed up Jaehaerys's children a bit. And, true, true. But a lot of it was he said, you know, uh, I mean, Paris told us we were in London, and you know, George would sometimes like toss and turn in his sleep, and as soon as he woke up, he'd go off to the office to start writing because he had he he was just stuck on creating this stuff for, for the world as in fire like it was really um the piece he wrote at was this we would we would start waking up at like because he would send stuff off to us uh and ann in the evening uh in new mexico so you know nine ten o'clock and for us that's like 5 a.m so we started getting up <laughs> at 5 a.m just to see like what's new from george like christmas every uh, morning and, like, <laughs> and, and, and almost I mean, there were periods where it was almost daily something new for him. He was uh, on a tear. And it was a lot. It was like when it was, it's clear, obviously, it's this is easier material to create. It flows more freely because you don't have to, as you say, you don't have have characters, you don't have dialogue going on. And and he was, he just had all this creativity and all this that came out. And it was was really cool to see. And I mean, it's really, I mean, people say, they say, oh, it distracted him. But at the same time, I think it it kind of allowed him to kind of unblock mm. uh, some aspects of writing in the world because he still loves the world. He loves the setting that he's created. He loves the stories that are possible in it. It's laying a foundation for him to write more. Yeah. 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 And as as much as we've paid attention to it, and of course, we're not the only ones. Lots of people have noticed things like this. He He seems to love the... And if some of this comes maybe relates to the Wheel of Time novels, but as well, just in general, as a real world truism of sorts that history repeats itself. George likes to work out seemingly some of what's going to be worked out in the plot in the main series with historical events. Sometimes like there's there's hearkenings or similar events or events that have very strong parallels to modern events like like the like the Great Council. Yes. Something the Great that we Council. maybe didn't know was going to be quite so relevant at the time. Right. Or, for example, the notion of dragon seeds is introduced in, in during the Dance of the Dragons, and that's a really big deal. And there's no current dragon seeds that's called by name in the current story, but there's certainly people that might end up writing a dragon that could that term could apply to them, even whether or not it gets used or not. So it seems like that when you refer to him unblocking, getting unblocked, I, I think 
that sounds right to me. It reg it feels intuitively accurate as well as especially when we frame it in this uh with this idea of of him working through what might happen in the book later. So that's really neat. I like that a lot. I also want to jump back to something you said, Sean, or that we were talking about with uh, the homogenization and viewing people as a group. That's happening right now with the first men as we discuss them. The first men are not just one ethnicity. It's they're called that as a shortcut because nobody knows better. Nobody knows what ethnicities they used to have, like where, what land, what part of Essos they came from would have had some part of defining who they were, but that's all lost. So first men is a catch-all phrase. Super important to remember that. It's not one ethnicity. It's not one culture. It's just called that because we don't know better. And the end all sort of framed it that way later, I guess more so than anybody else. Elliot, do you have anything to add to that or is that uh, pretty much how you see it too? No, I think that that's, that's really how I see it. I was thinking a little bit about the example of where he was thinking about you know, the first generation and the next generation, you know, being warned about it, the next wave being warned. I was thinking about, you know, mm. the, the American frontier where you had like the earliest people to explore the frontier, uh, trappers and scouts who formed out of necessity more positive relationships, just sort of the more careful relationships with the the uh, Native Americans mm. trying to tell the people, you know, homesteaders and people coming behind them, you know, how to respect you know don't don't go over to this that's a, a sacred site that's a great a burial place and them being scoffed at and them saying you know we've got we've got our, our caravan wagon our caravan of wagons we've got our guns we don't have to care what the the engines have to say about it uh and and that fomenting so much trouble and i it's, it's very easy to imagine that the people who would come after would wouldn't have the experience of interacting with them and so they would just form a, a very they have a completely different baseline of knowledge on which to interact. And it's one thing to be told something. It's quite another to actually experience it and discover it on your own. It's also worth noting they would have different, uh, I don't know how to say this, demands, uh, I guess. Like an alone hmm. trapper or even two guys going down a riverside just trying to scrape a enough food together for themselves is different than two families building houses. Yeah, right. Point. Yeah. They're going to chop down more trees to make the houses and the cook True. fires more to they're going to spread out more mm -hmm. land and gardens they're just more likely to have an impact even if they aren't necessarily trying to be malicious yeah. they just might and, and when you get more and more of them they're just more and more going to encroach on the land and use up more resources even if they're attempting to uh respect the natives land or sure. traditions or whatever it's more difficult for them to and at a certain point they might feel like we can't what else are we supposed to do we're going to let our children starve or freeze to death rather than cut down yeah. these trees we're cutting down these trees yeah. and the natives, yeah. natives attack them so then they fight back to defend themselves and no one feels like they're in the wrong even if someone is more or less in the wrong but uh they're all fundamentally in those early stages just trying to survive yeah so, yeah i actually what aspect is i mean when they discuss what the what the first men brought with them is you know it's cattle it's horses they need pasture and they brought agriculture they need fields and if you look at the early history of agriculture even agriculture today it's a lot of slash and burn you mm. you burn down forests to make places so you can start farming so uh that would have been a huge shock i think to to the children obviously like why would you destroy our forests especially when we're living in it yeah uh, just so you know Learn to, learn, learn to do like what we do. We just hunt and live off the land, and that's enough. Uh, why, why do you need more? Why do you need to have these fields 
of grains and why do you need to have these animals and uh, pent up and why do you need to make so many of yourselves that was another thing right there's so many more humans than children (laughs) right uh that's yeah that's really really well said good said uh the uh, the idea that this this notion of the early trappers being the first point of contact is really fascinating to me. That's a, that was a really good idea to raise because also they live more similarly. Like Sean points out, the the settlers yeah. that come behind, they're not only are they doing things very differently. They, like you said, they have different demands. The trappers, the other side of the coin is the trappers are living a similar lifestyle. The children hunted and gathered, so a, a trapper is basically a hunter and gatherer. So that's a they live a similar lifestyle. That, that's at least something to find common ground on. Like, hey, I also kill animals to eat them and wear their skins hey so do i you know that's uh, <laughs> that's something it's definitely something um and then and from that something is where they start trading and start figuring out basic ways of communication and then over presumably over very long periods of time that advances the the children are maybe better at keeping holding on to that knowledge because of the way their collective intelligence sort of works or maybe kind of works we're not fully clear on that and their longer lifespan so that you know you're dealing you know with another thing experience elio i think you asked almost rhetorically you know the children would be like why do you need these fields why, do you, <laughs> yeah. why don't you do it like us but and especially for the children who have these uh i don't know supernatural abilities to communicate with each other or whatever they have longer lifespans and so on they wouldn't want or need some things that these new people would like a ship to sail back home or yeah. or a more stable uh, stock of food, you know, grain and supply, something like that. And, and at some point, some of the things that the, the first men or, or you know, whoever, uh, you know, uh, coming into contact with children, they would have some things that children would recognize like, oh, actually, uh, that's a pretty useful tool or that's a pretty clever idea that, you know, that there would be exchanges, you know, of, of goods and services and knowledge, even if the one race is quote unquote more superior, but, and, 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 and that might be the need for the, if you want to think of the first men as being inferior in certain ways, needing all these resources, <laughs> but they, they, maybe they are, they don't have these supernatural powers are trying to find ways to make up for it. So, yeah, that's, um, that's well said. Yeah. So I think I may have mentioned this before, but I, I remember hearing just, just other examples of how native Americans were just, flummoxed at some of the beliefs that that uh settlers had and vice versa one good example is mm-hmm. is gold native americans didn't give a crap about gold maybe except maybe in a few exceptions that uh, but for the most part it didn't matter to them and they had a name for it which translated roughly to the yellow metal that makes white people crazy <laughs> <laughs> i was like that's okay that's uh, that's pretty accurate i guess it's a pretty accurate description the spanish conquistadors they brought horses and the natives there had never seen a horse before and it's there's there's similar stories of this like in ancient greece where people thought the first time they ever saw someone riding a horse they thought they were a centaur you know things like that so (laughs) so just it's really hard to reset your brain to this point of not knowing things to try to have the perspective of, of these ancients it almost seems silly to us because we know so well, but it, to them, what, I mean, if you, if you can like imagine yourself in a more quote unquote ignorant state, what would you think? Yeah. What would you, I mean, it, yeah. it, it makes sense to think that when you don't have the knowledge base that we have now. Have you all seen Apocalyptica? Uh, uh, yeah, I think Apocalypto? I did see that. Apocalypto, I mean, sorry. Apocalyptica is the band. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's like Metallica. They're like the cellists the, playing Metallica. The classical instruments, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Apocalypto. Yeah. So the end, they're, they're, the the settler ships or the this. Yeah. They just they're just like, what the heck is that? Their ships just coming, and they're like, they've never seen a ship before, and they just stare at it like, what? <laughs> that's kind of how I think. Like, if we ever saw a dragon, that's what we'd be like. We'd be like, what? <laughs> Let's hope that doesn't actually happen, though. Well, I don't want to see a dragon. That film's interesting. I, I know, but it, that film gets obviously stick from people. But it's a it's a, a fantasy of the sort of yeah Mesoamerican. But 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 what's what I find is like if you put yourself in the perspective of the characters, like everything that's happening in the world makes sense to them. Mm. From the European perspective, it's just completely bizarre. You know the the sacrifices, tearing yeah. people's heart out, all of that. None of that makes sense. <laughs> On the other hand, from the perspective. What's coming, it makes no sense to them. These <laughs> tall, bearded people coming off these great wooden boats. It's like the, how the Dothraki look at it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's like, it, it's such a... So, yeah, the, the, there must have been a complete kind of this confusion from the first contact between the children and, and the first men. It's like, they're so different. It's like it's like a first contact. It's like a, it's like a Star Trek kind of thing. Oh, you know? yeah, it's, yeah, it's Star Trek. That's perfect. Yeah, you know. On the other hand, we should perhaps consider, given the Green Seer's abilities, maybe they foresaw it. Maybe they had some idea it was coming. Now they wouldn't necessarily be able to predict the exact interactions. I don't. I'm not. I don't know that green dreams are so crystal clear that they would be able to see things in such clarity. But they may have seen something. They may have seen these images, these faces, these beings, and them crossing or them chopping down the trees or, I don't know, they may have had some bad dreams before, uh, something like that. So that's another really interesting idea, something to consider, um, given that dreams and, and are such a big part of their existence. Maybe they, uh, maybe they saw some of it coming. I don't know. Then again, if they did, then why didn't they break the arm earlier? <laughs> I guess that could be maybe because they didn't break the arm at all. It's possible. But we'll get to that in a minute. We'll, uh, we'll get to the broken arm. Um, let's talk a little bit about how some of these concepts apply to Dorne specifically. We talked about not or being careful about amalgamating a race or a group of races that we don't know the breakdown of. But, of course, when cultures come from one place and they exist in a new place long enough, at some point they become a new culture. They they may have that distant ancestry. Their DNA, if, if if it were possible to measure it, would still contain evidence of where they originated from. But culturally, they would have evolved into something new. And in Dorne, well, that's a pretty interesting story all in itself. So let's start uh, with some quotes. The Dornish men boast that theirs is the oldest of the seven kingdoms of Westeros. This is true after a fashion. Unlike the Andals, who came later, the first men were not seafarers. They came to Westeros not on longships, but afoot, over the land bridge from Essos, the remnants of which exist today only as the stepstones and the broken arm of Dorne. Walking or riding, the eastern shores of Dorne would inevitably have been where they first set foot upon Westerosi soil. One of the most interesting houses in all of not just Dorne, but all of Westeros' House Dane. They're one of the most interesting, uh, most compelling, and they all they might have one of the most ancient lineages, at least uh, when you see them, the name thrown around, you often hear houses talking about, oh, our, our age, our house goes back to the age of heroes. You hear the term 8,000 years thrown around. With, with, Dane, with the Danes, occasionally you see it as high as 10,000 years. 
and this whole legend of them, the founder following a fallen star to the site of the of where the castle was built. Elia, how do you imagine that? Do you think of that as like they followed all the way across the land bridge all the way there? Were they already settled in Dorne? I mean, I know we don't we're not going to have a clear answer, but just when you think about it, like what what kind of comes into uh, your head? Interesting. I I, I admit I, I I because it's so kind of I mean uh, the the, the ten thousand specific number comes from Dark Star, I believe. Oh, he says yeah. that the uh, and that and, and ten thousand is this kind of thing of what George often uses characters that is a many many rounding goes yeah. so his 10,000 could be rounding it could be 7,000 it could be 8,000 um it's just for effect i uh, i have my own notions about the Danes, so um <laughs> feel free uh, <laughs> and just my theories about them but that they they may not quite be quite be the same as the other first men yeah um, that's kind of why i wanted to put them first because yeah uh, they have differences yeah. <laughs> Because I, and I keep thinking about uh, the old town where George introduced the idea that the, uh, the the lowest levels of the high tower are this black stone. Mm. Yeah, mm. <laughs> what's going Curious. on there? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. folks, if in case it's not clear, and we've explained this before, but some of y'all may not have heard it. The Danes have purple eyes, so for a lot, well, at least a lot of them do. We're not clear on if it's, it's probably not one hundred percent of them. Anyway, point being. For a long time in the fandom, people thought there was some sort of connection to the Targaryens, or at least to Valyria. But George was, was explicit, right? That they that if there is a no, connection, not to, it's Targaryens. It's super ancient. If there's any connection at all, so they have purple yeah. eyes for some other reason. It's not related to that. But that in itself is an interesting genetic marker that sort of separates them. Because who else has purple eyes? If it's not besides the ones who are explicitly by George not connected to them, well, nobody, no one else has purple eyes except for them that we know of. No. So. And uh, there's the other bit where, where we've asked about Dawn, the sword of the Danes, and, and how is it? How old is it? And he said, well, it's it's a couple thousand years old at least. And then beyond that, it's our things are getting fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's obviously holding his cards. I think for a bit. At the same time, he's being realistic about it. I mean, if 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 you had a, a artifact that was genuinely many thousands of years old, like if, if today some of them came out and said here i've got the sword of gilgamesh Um, (laughs) people would probably argue about what exactly is it that how old would it actually be there's all sorts of different Hmm. different over the over the course of modern history there's been a lot of different timelines for when various things happened when various people existed uh so uh yeah it's, it's it's an interesting one and, and, and one aspect of this is, is, you know, we mentioned Mr. Liu and he was our, his history was our kind of our first basis for what Yandel kind of shares his timeline that he provides. Mm. I mean, of, of roughly of the age of age. He occasionally mentions other guesses, like how old the world is or whatever. But George later started to get a bit fuzzier on the numbers, especially for ancient things. And and, and mm. we brought it up with him, like why did numbers start getting fuzzier like later? Like when um when Samuel goes on about how the timeline for the, the number of Lord Commanders yeah. of Night's Watch has is kind of weird and there's some kind of break and you know, we say the you know 999th commander, but I found this and it would say and, and he stops. We don't hear exactly John interrupts and him. We're mad at John for that. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, and, and George said, well, that's that's because of, of you and, and fans like you who kept asking me about <laughs> trying to take out all these things. So he stopped and, and also pointed out mistakes. So he stopped being quite so precise. So it's easier for him to you know, make errors. So, uh, oh, that's hilarious. You know, yeah. I, I brought that up one time that, I don't know, discrepancy, if you will. You did, Sean. Just yeah. the idea that it's it's likely that certain ages would be exaggerated, right? Mm -hmm. If there were yeah. any holes or gaps or opportunities for someone to claim the Night's Watch was older than it was, of course they would do that. You know what I yeah. mean? Like any house wants to be, you know, 2,000 years old, not 1,300 years old. There's a certain prestige that comes with age, a certain mystique and honor and et cetera. So it makes sense for numbers to get fudged and rounded and you're totally you, you right. You see this yeah. in history. I mean, you just look at the Bible. Uh, the Bible has, uh, the Old Testament has people living hundreds of years to try and create <laughs> this lineage. And then you have uh, more recently, um, or you, the Vikings, they, there's the, the sort of Nordic kings, the Norse kings had these legendary lineages that would, after like five or six generations, start getting very fuzzy. And then, and then we were descended from Odin, who was the father <laughs> of Alliance, a real god of years. And so, so um, yeah, history. One of the things that I wish George paid more attention to was more kind of how how were these things recorded? I mean, we have like the septons recorded, mm -hmm. the oral histories, but there are runes, there are rune stones. The first men probably would have left monumental items with with something. But uh, so we, I mean, one of the things we have is you know, Yandel refers to studies of this sort of thing and people, masters who've tried to catalog. You know the, the the barrow mounds and and in the north and things of that sort but uh that's that's one area where i felt i could fill in the gap a little bit and i like there are maces paying attention to this stuff and trying to figure it out hmm. it it's probably not going to come out in the books but there, there is an effort i'm sure there's probably competing timelines this is till i mean even now there's some very crazy alternative timelines to our big world history yeah um there's a russian fellow who came with a very very different timeline to things and obviously there's the creationist timeline which is very different as well <laughs> it's from pretty the different, yeah. timeline. <laughs> that is very true yeah just just reading about the history yeah. of history you see that's one of the things that maybe gets lost yeah. on the shelf you see people used to believe it was this and then they used to believe it was this and they used to believe it was this. we have had yeah different phases of belief and most of them are based on new information coming to yes, life, new yeah. archaeological or carbon dating or whatever. Sometimes it's it cultural is. or religious yeah. shifts, but yeah, you're right. A lot of times it's, especially now, especially now with the technology, it's just opening yeah. so many things up. Yeah. yeah. A lot of times too, even now when like, I don't know, scientists, you know, our modern day masers sometimes make some new realization, but it isn't immediately disseminated. Even with the internet, it still isn't immediately disseminated everyone. It still might take a couple years for it to become part of school curriculums or whatever. And, and even just, you know, when, when we were in high school, what we were learning in high school might be a generation old as far as information on, I don't know, quantum physics or the Big Bang Theory or something like that. Sure, yeah. So imagine in this time, there may be some maester who has tracked down a more realistic timeline, but even everyone in the Citadel isn't even aware of it, much less everyone in the world. So another thought that I had, by the way, uh, especially thinking of potential alternate origins of Dane compared to like our real world history, there is a thought that some early, early settlers of the Americas came maybe before or independently of the Bering Strait. They think that there's there's good evidence they may have sailed across yes. to South America. The, yeah, the, I was the islands of the Philippines, Polynesian islands were all being settled by seafarers. But 
it will be long lost because the sea level's risen like a hundred meters since. Then. Yeah. So any kind of uh, uh, settlements would have been on the coast yeah. along the the South American coast are just buried in the ocean for you know I don't know thousands of years. So we can't. It's a good supposition to make, but we have no evidence for it really. Yeah, it's what like are we you have. What are you doing we, here then, Sean? Why aren't you on the South? American <laughs> yeah, get in there, coast, man. In the get water. in there. <laughs> yeah, it's like caves are but more it contained. Be something like that with, are more, with Dane, yeah. right? They mm-hmm. may have come in some earlier wave uh, yeah. that may have been lost in rising sea levels or whatever else. Yeah, know. that's true because well, maybe we'll get into this a little bit later. But you're right; like the it's not said in Westeros this happened, but in the real world, the Bering Strait was passable. Then it wasn't. Then it was. Then it wasn't. And now it's not. And it may like in thousands of years become passable again on foot. Uh, Maybe not, but these things go in phases. So it's possible, you know, like you're saying, there's uh, it's also possible that the arm was partially crossed. But there's another theory that things a large population was lived on the bridge and was stuck there for a while due to like kind of being glaciers on either side. <laughs> and then so they had like a micro uh, microcosm of evolution there. But uh, yeah, it's super, super fascinating. I just want to bring up a little thing. We're bringing up a uh, house Dane. I learned something new when I was uh, getting ready for this episode. I did not really? realize that the house Dane sigil at one point was a seven pointed star and that oh, y'all oh. had that fixed to be a five pointed star. Just little things like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. What was the, uh, that was just, yeah. yeah. What's the story behind that? Uh, well, that was when George was writing a piece for crews. He told us that he had come up with, militant orders, mm. stars and the swords, and he decided that he wanted the seven-pointed star to be something that was used primarily by families that had the connections to, like, particular connections to the faith, or who had members who were, you know, family, had had some association with the stars or the swords. So we went through all the houses that had stars at that point, and he decided which of them would keep having a seven-pointed star and which of them oh, okay. would not, and uh, Dane was one that he decided, you know, that their sigil was, predates the Andals, and, and so it doesn't make sense for mm-hmm. theirs to be seven-pointed. Cool. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Real quick, I doubt you have an exact number, but I'm just curious about how many houses have a star as part of their sigil. Is it like seven or 38? Seven or... would be appropriate. Uh, <laughs> I'd want to say there's at least half a dozen. Okay. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And Sunglass, uh, Dane. Tarbeck, but they're gone now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and Tarbeck, obviously, uh, that one he kept seven. He really liked how that one came out when we did our, our take on oh, it. Oh, cool. He, he, well, that was, he, 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 so much so that he said that he was ashamed that he had killed them off already. <laughs> he, he oh. that <laughs> That's funny. Even if you're one of those people who is good at coming up with gift ideas, you can never really have too many because, let's be honest, anyone you're getting a gift for you're probably getting gifts for regularly or semi-regularly, right? So let me suggest GiveHerGifts.com. A package from GiveHerGifts.com is an excellent idea. G-I-V-H-E-R, gifts. There's no E in give. 
These gifts are different than the rest because it is an experience that you and your partner can do together. It's about connection. Aaron, the owner, started GiveHerGifts.com recently. It's a small business, independently owned. A lot of people really prefer when their gifts come from indie stores instead of the Goliath companies. It's kind of nice. It makes it feel a little more uh, personal. We got a sample package here. It's a combination of romantic, useful, and quirky. I'm particularly into this beeswax candle because it says queenly romances on it. Uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire, we see beeswax candles in fancy places and used as sealing wax. So this, uh, this fits pretty nicely. Many generations of lady beesberries would be all over this, I'm quite sure. They would certainly approve of this and the rest of the package because this is just one of the items. I'm actually going to light this so the rest of our studio smells like beeswax for the rest of this episode. Oh, you're going to light it. I'm going to light it. Exciting. So we're going to have a nice candle lit podcast for the rest of our time here today. Whoa, Look fire. That. Wow, that a, that's the first time we've ever had fire. I think that's on our a stream. big candle. This, these matches also came in the package. So, you know, this is nice. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to be smelling like beeswax the rest of this podcast. So None give her gifts, G-I-V-H-E-R, gifts.com. Get 10% off with the code Westeros. The link is down in the description. Check it out. Moving on, we have, boy, that smells really good. Mm. <laughs> it, has, it hasn't reached me yet. Quite. Yeah, soon it will. Okay, so let's take a couple questions here. Anthony. Oh, I smell it now. Yeah, it smells yeah, good, do. doesn't it? Very smoky. <laughs> Anthony says, do you guys think the Roynish water wizards who taught the native Dornish how to communicate with the rivers were actually just farmers who knew irrigation. The former sounds way cooler, and we know that elemental magic seems to exist, but the latter is just more rational. This is something I've always struggled with because I really want to think the more rational irrigation thing, but I I do think that there's enough stories of their water magic that they did have water magic. I think they used their water magic for advanced irrigation. I feel like it's probably both. both like it was like, because, yeah. yeah, you hear stories of water, water, Roynish water wizards, like hitting dragons with whirlpools yeah, like, and water. Yeah, I don't think that's all spouts. made up. Yeah, but they probably did have better farming techniques. Like they lived along the river and they existed so much longer. What do you think, Elia? I, I'm inclined to believe, I mean, even the most maesters agree that there was more magic in the past. And so I, I am inclined to believe the accounts, which must come from... Um, Valyrian histories mm. of of these water wizards, and I guess any surviving Roynish histories. Yeah, uh, as obviously there's no water wizards any longer. Of magic has sort of faded away, yeah. but at the same time, um, you know the the text mentions. I mean, the Dornish irrigated yeah. uh, along the along the river banks to to supply their, their farms and their fields. So I, I think they probably went hand in hand. I suspect a lot of the water wizard work was stuff like dousing for for wells and, mm. and things like that mm. uh as time passed but uh we, i guess we're supposed to believe that they also were able to you know make water shoot up out of the rivers and i i'm not sure how we how that would necessarily be used um, <laughs> yeah other than to take out dragons <laughs> per se. like our, our lives are constantly constantly going and um constantly working to move water from one place to another but maybe they would have ways to make it, you know, make it easier for the water to find a path to where you can get it where you want it to be, so uh, that they yeah. can then use it for irrigation. It's a good kind question. of encouraged uh, its direction. Yeah, I've never really talked to George about that one ever. Though. Well, it's yeah. yeah I always thought it was like a really interesting thing. Is it's it, it's not that long ago that the died out. Yeah. You know, yeah. like for water magic to disappear, it's just so weird to me that there aren't Dornish that profess to have it that. We we just don't see any of it. Yeah, and this isn't I, I thousands get, of years ago. Yeah, 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 I don't get why yeah. 
their magic disappeared. Hmm. Except that if it was blood related, like they did too much intermarriage and Dorn and the really pureborn Roinar, maybe they can still do it. I, I don't know. Maybe there's yeah, not enough uh, water in a desert to maintain their skills. Or maybe maybe the, the magic actually lies in the river Roin. And, oh, and yeah. once they left it, I mean, the magic, what yeah. they could do. That's why they kept trying them. to go back. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That's true, yeah. yeah that's why it might be the most satisfying answer to me, because it is something that has always bothered me. Just the idea of, like, why did it go away? What are the circumstances here? Yeah. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Yeah, we, we do Lots certainly... Lots of other magic went away, too. It could yeah. all be connected to yeah, the same... Yeah, that's true, but, like, the Targaryens... Have been suppressed. Yeah, but still, like, the Targaryens still had their dragon dreams. Like, they still had their magic. Yeah. It didn't go away entirely. Yeah, it didn't yeah. go away entirely. So you would think maybe there was some, were some Droinar, some Dornish who could, you know, make a sprinkle. Yeah, maybe they're still out there. They could if there was some water around. <laughs> and, and yeah, you're right, you are right that I, just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean that they don't exist. We haven't seen a lot of Dorn. We haven't seen a lot of the Roinar, no. you know. And, and one time, one reason this is so relevant right here is because we're as we build up to the breaking of the arm. Well, that's a similar form of magic potentially. It, it might be an earthquake that shattered the arm, but it might be a raising of the waters, which is a similar kind of manipulation of water, just water associated magic, nature magic uh, to, to maybe generalize a little more. But yeah, it's uh, at least at least, the, at least thematically connected in, in some ways. So that's pretty cool. Hopefully well, that- uh, Real quick, I wanna yeah, ask Elio, are you familiar with Avatar, The Last Airbender? I, I know of it, I've never watched it. Okay. So um, I, I I haven't unfortunately. So you, you imagine they're waterbenders. Yeah, or, yeah, waterbenders. Water, yeah. yeah, there's water, <laughs> earth, air, firebenders in that world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So something that um I I I can't remember if we even bring it up, but um obviously in Essos we we hear about the Ifikevron, you know, which is you know our children mm -hmm. of the forest of Essos. Do you have any thoughts on whether you think they were there or they came? You know, any thoughts on the Ifakevron? It's such like a throwaway thing, but it ca captured my thoughts so immediately. They're pretty cool, yeah. Yeah, I, I have to imagine that they, they existed all across, mm. you know, at least Essos and, and Westeros. And it seems, I mean, Essos became, you know, had the, the first people came from there, so they became the first place where civilizations formed, and, that, and they must have had their own conflicts, lost to history with the children. Until the children seem to have been, you know, driven into. I mean, if if they even exist any longer mm. in their in the forest any longer, or if that was their last bastion. So yeah, uh, that was something George. I mean, that came up. That one actually. So the if it ever first came up separately from the world of ice and fire as we oh. know it, because uh, that's the lands of ice and fire project. Oh yeah, that, that's was right. That that was up. that was yeah. the first time that it came. I was like, what? The land of the Ifakevron. I remember on Westeros.org, the people were just like going nuts. Like, what is that? Is that a thing? Is that a people? Is that a a person? Like, is that a race? Like, yeah. <laughs> there was so much speculation. That was good times. I was coming back from um, London for like a the like press junket for like season two of Game of Thrones or something, and and I, I had my iPad and I was checking my email, and George started sending scans of his maps. And then he and and each one was included like he had like uh, a text description of what all this stuff was, which was really cool. Mm. And obviously, we were very happy to incorporate that into the World of Ice and Fire when we were finishing up, and that's for the ancient history stuff. So, uh, so yeah, no, the, that was pretty neat uh, where that came up. 
Uh, and also, I think I recall, I mean, he gave a name for them and, and uh, or the meaning of it, I, which I can't remember it offhand, but that, I mean, he had consulted with David Peterson about, hmm. about that sort of thing. Right on. About what to call it, what the Defraki would call them. That's cool. Yeah, because you know, I also have to wonder, I mean, the, the children are able to communicate with each other far more easily than the average person. So, I, you know, in terms of were they communicating across, you know, from Westeros to Essos? Um, are those kind of different closed circuit networks, if you know what I mean? Uh- <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I like the idea that there's this, you know, that the, the weirwoods are this massive, uh, what do we call it, clonal tree form, but mm-hmm. it's basically, it's all connected by roots underground. Yeah. That, that maybe that's necessary for that to work, but... Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. That's that's just a theory. I kind of like the idea. I mean, there are organisms, there are trees like that that are just gigantic clones of themselves. It's kind of a collective group that uh, is all connected together, and they, they look like separate trees, but they're not. Um, <laughs> and obviously, that ties into you know other I, things George has written and so on. So, the notion, perhaps, that all of this was like a Pangea as we had on Earth, is is a possibility. Now, with such a vast time scale that doesn't necessarily mean that you know bipeds existed that long ago um maybe the children did um but the reason i bring this up now is because of this next question that refers to the possibility that a lot of these races were either closer together or that they're misrepresented kind of the way the green men are so it's kind of an open-ended question as to the identification of other species and cultures so let me let me read it here is there a chance the brindled men and the hairy men and all the other races are just regular people with only slightly different features? In our world, early writings of explorers and imperialists ex- described natives inhabiting other lands as monstrous and beast-like. But we know now that they just had different skin colors and spoke different languages. Those early writers were mostly horrid jerks. But is it possible in the world of ice and fire for the maesters to hold similar prejudices? Perhaps the city of winged men doesn't have winged men, but men who wear feathered cloaks or something like that for some kind of custom maybe to honor gods who knows the sentiment is shared with the green men on the isle of faces when it's when it's implied that they may simply wear green robes and horn headdresses and this could be true with the satorii too well let me i can at least answer the easiest part of this the brindled men and hairy men are well attested uh they're they appear in like the gladiator pits and other places so they are legitimately different but uh, when it gets to the winged men and the green men in particular, he's he's, he's got a point, don't you think, Elio? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I mean, once you get past a certain, once you go far enough east, it gets extremely. I mean, no maester has been to the city of winged men. It's this accounts from travelers on the you know who, who claim to have heard from someone else, who claim to have heard from someone who claimed to have been there or something, you know. So uh, yeah, that's where that even exists. Is is you know it it. You know, you have to look at works like uh, Herodotus and Pliny for mm, yes. the sort of, uh, or, you know, Marco Polo's account of, of you know, there are men with faces in their bellies and things. That, <laughs> there's a lot of... Uh, nonsense. It's l- <laughs> not a nonsense, probably, <laughs> when you go out very far east and on that map of, uh, of Essos. There's a lot of stuff like, it's just like the, the barest rumors of, of rumors atop of rumors. Uh, about those things so absolutely as far as um uh, sophros and like yeah i said that the the brindled men there's we have accounts of those the hairy men i mean that the hairy men are are the sort of these uh kind of not 
necessarily prehistoric, but they involve in sort of the classical period of conflicts, as I recall, mm. in Essos, not not necessarily from uh, Socorros. And uh, I, I I had imagined them being, I mean, they, I think there's suggestions they might be related to the men of Ib. Yeah. And, you know, and or the, the giants, Mises have definitely yeah. have their, yeah, have their, um, their views on, on their understandings of that, where I think uh, Yandel talks about them as, you know, they don't, uh, they can't breed with humans or they can do over their mules, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're not able to procreate. But then obviously we have the claim from uh, Ben Plum that he's descended from, uh, he's part Ibanese. Yeah. So that calls into question that whole thing. And Yandel doesn't know. Uh, he, he's going off the general sort of received wisdom among the, among the maesters about that thing. Uh, it's, I think, I think there's definitely different groups. Uh, there are definitely different subspecies of humanity mm-hmm. uh, i think like the ibanese the way george describes them they sound a little bit like he said they're kind of neanderthals who kind of have continued yeah. to exist yeah. but uh you know we, we, there's a small amount of neanderthal dna in all of us yeah. so that. Yeah. or well, Some most, more than others. Well, all of us i think <laughs> most of us at least in, the, in, in europe anyone from from europe has a little bit of neanderthal dna yeah, we did. Uh, we talked about that in our Giants episode. It's really fascinating to, to yeah. go back that far, and and some of these things ring true. It's pretty clear that George has a, a at least a better than a decent idea of a lot of. He's very well read and understands history. He may not be, you know, uh, an expert on ancient history or prehistory, but he he knows his stuff. If I may, is a couple of these topics we just hit on segue to a question I had. Go for it, Elio. You may have some insight into this. I wonder if any there is an inspiration for dorn by afghanistan hmm. I, I realize how many parallels there are that the word afghan the origins of that word roughly translate to cavalry or horse breeder and we know hmm. that's you know, the the steeds of dorn are a, i don't know part of its identity and they're both very mountainous desertous terrains yeah afghanistan is one of the most ancient civilizations in the world and also one of the least uh, urbanized civilization, you know, it doesn't have very many large cities. The Silk Road ran through Afghanistan, which would have been like trade routes and uh, would have mixed a lot of different cultures and a sort of a bridge between the continents. It's uh, it's been, been resistant to occupation. Yeah. It's thrice fought <laughs> off the British and then the Soviets and then the U.S. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's all just coincidence. If that was in George's mind somewhere, uh, he would have been a witness to the Soviets uh-huh. in Afghanistan and... I think there's a little bit of it. I, I mean, everything is anything that he creates is a, a melange of various inspirations. I mean, it's uh, it also has a bit of the Moorish Spain with the sort of the confluence of different cultures and the sort of the, the differences there. The the part that I always think that was inspired by Afghanistan a little bit was uh, Alexander Great's campaigns mm-hmm. there, especially in Bactria, where um, with with the young dragon. Uh, with the whole thing where they, you know, the, the the young dragon used the goat track to, you know, get past the Dornish watchtowers, and uh, there's this whole account of Alexander sending men climbing up a cliff face to surprise uh, the Bactrians. Uh, so that's kind of thing I think certainly has some influence. Uh, George has, you know, read he's read you know popular histories and things of that kind, and at the same time, Crusader histories, you know, the horns of Hatton and. Uh, but the the challenges of the Crusaders trying to hold on to her state, or when they're in this desert community of uh, Richard, Richard the Lionhearted being there, and uh, what he did, all of those things I think are 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 an influence. I think 
George would have named Afghan first, but it has to be in the mix. Right on. Well said. Yeah, I think yeah, I think uh, of Alexander and, <laughs> as yeah, well. For, yeah, <laughs> for reference, Sean, other places that uh, come up when thinking of Dorne are obviously, uh, we mentioned more Spain, but there's, you know, Wales is often brought up. Mm, um, yeah, even yeah. India a bit. But yeah, definitely yeah. Afghanistan, the Middle East in general, I think it, it is in the mix there. At first, when I was, you know, watching a show and reading a book, I was equating it to Spain or maybe even Egypt, you know, Northern it's Africa, especially Mediterranean. Especially considering it was filmed there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but then when I'm starting to read The World of Ice and Fire and, the, and learning more about the history of Dorne oh. and its resistance to Targaryens, I started thinking how similar it was to Afghanistan. So anyway. Yeah, yeah that's pretty good. Another comment here. You know, it's okay to have an affair with Oberyn because he doesn't kiss and martell. Mm. <laughs> actually, actually, accidentally wrote "kill" and "martell" in the document here. Yeah, I was that's, wondering what that, that meant. That's true. Also, <laughs> he does kill and tell, uh, or he did anyway. So we mentioned a lot of the different places to find you and different projects you've been a part of, different uh, major areas in the community that you have been uh, a part of creating. But we didn't mention your YouTube channel, Elio. You guys have a YouTube oh. channel as well with a lot of good stuff over there. Why don't you give us a, a minute on that real quick? Uh, well, it's a very dormant channel at the moment, okay. but uh, we were doing things uh, discussing. We, I guess I don't know what why we started doing it. We just thought it would be fun to start talking about uh, various topics about the, the mm -hmm. setting, uh, theories, uh, ideas, characters, and then when the TV show came out, we started to to do sort of reviews, discussions um of the series as uh, episode by episode uh why well, I, I stopped at the end of season five and, uh, <laughs> yeah uh continued on with it as best <laughs> you could uh yeah it's been very dormant we've been talking about getting back into it we just got a new camera last week oh, uh, nice. but i've been waiting to get finally and uh kind of up the, the quality a bit and um probably for house of the dragon we, we're a little conflicted about how to uh, we're probably not going to review house of the dragon i mean House of a Dragon is based on Fire and Blood, yeah. and all that material that it's based on was written for our book. Yeah. So we feel like it'd be a little odd for us <laughs> to comment on it in a sort of a, a review way, but we might discuss mm. it just like, this is the history in the book, and this is yeah. this is the history as they presented, and it's showing the differences and the details and what, what's the same, what's different. We might, we might do that. Um, that we haven't fully decided, but that okay. that, that, that sounds like a, an approach we'll take. Right on. Uh, that sounds good. To it. Well, yeah, and of course, talk about having expectations, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and the channel is just called Westro. Super easy to find. Yeah, I put it in the um in the yeah. chat description for. Great. All okay. As well. Yeah, it's got y'all's uh, westros.org logo. Very easy to to, to uh, recognize. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about the formation of some of the, uh, we talked about King Daron, that's appropriate, because he is one of the main sources on some of this stuff. Most of the first men who chose to remain in Dorne, instead of wandering north in search of sweeter lands, settled close to the banks of the Greenblood, digging canals and ditches to bring its life-giving waters to the trees and crops they planted. Others preferred to dwell beside the narrow sea. The eastern shores of Dorne are more forgiving than the southern, and soon many many small villages arose, sustaining themselves on fish and crabs. The more restless of the first men pushed onward and made homes for themselves in the foothills south of the Red Mountains, where storms moving north were wont to drop their moisture, creating a fertile green belt. 
Those who climbed farther took refuge amongst the peaks in hidden valleys and high mountain meadows where the grass was green and sweet. Only the bravest and the maddest dared to strike out inland across the deep sands. A few of these found water amongst the dunes and raised holdfasts and castles on those oases. Their descendants, centuries later, became the lords of the wells. But for every man who stumbled on a well, a hundred must surely have died of thirst beneath the blazing Dornish sun. Yikes. So you see sort of the the formation of these new uh, ethnic groups or new cultural groups. I guess it's they're I guess that's both true. They're both ethnic and culturally distinct. They may have come from a common origin, but that origin is long lost to the mysteries of time or the mists of time rather. And as we are all somewhat products of our environment, these very different environments, high mountains, deserts, etc., uh, have created differences within these, these groups. So, of course, that's where we get salty, sandy, and stony, right? So the classifications that were made by Daron. Now, Daron's the original source for that, or was he, was he carrying that forward from someone else? I, I uh, we're told that it's that he is the originator of that uh, term. Right on. Um, right. I, 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 I don't necessarily doubt it. I imagine others must have had some other... There must have been a recognition that there were these three distinct sort of geographically determined groupings of Dornish. And especially by Daeron's time when the Roinar had, had been there for hundreds of years and particularly impacting along the coast. So I, I, there must have been something, or technically four groups. Always you have the orphans as well. Oh, are yeah, of course. Bit, a bit apart. But, uh, but those three main bodies of them, yes, absolutely. Uh, the actual term seemed to be Daerun, but I, I can't imagine he, it was a new thought that there were these three groups of people. Yeah, they're such simple names. I mean, stony, salty, and sandy. They're not like these yeah. fancy new terms or something. So yeah, and it does it does make a lot of sense. You're right. It, it would be kind of odd if no one had ever noticed or categorized that before. It's kind of hard to believe. It also makes sense that a, a famous figure like a king writing a book is already kind of unusual, especially someone at his age. Uh, but it would also be because the king wrote the book, it's going to immediately be more popular and widespread yeah. than, <laughs> than some other text. Um, I, of course, we must remember that it's not like these things are mass printed. <laughs> so, yeah, no. yeah, the king's word is going to carry a lot of extra weight, even though his life was short. So you wonder, I mean, it's mentioned in the books uh, that he exaggerated some of the danger of uh, some of the difficulty of his conquest. But there's not much reason to believe he exaggerated the stuff about ethnicities, right? I, I wouldn't see a no. reason to do that. There's not much incentive. No. I mean, we, we, I mean, yeah, I mean, we see it. I mean, it seems pretty clear that just in the sense of the, 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 the histories of these different groups of why they have different um, appearances, for example, with the, the, you know, the Roynish blood being most obvious among the salty and then, and both from the mountains, the stony Dornishmen having the most Andal blood. So you get fairer people, ruddier skin people, um, it, it fits the descriptions of the characters that we get in the books and, and just makes uh, makes sense that way. So that, that part seems to be accurate enough. And I mean, um, and George made a distinction. He talked about how, for example, we, I, we asked him about the heraldry of like the Blackmonts and um, the Manwoodies. Like, mm. why do they have such sort of wicked, aggressive, <laughs> yeah, violent, of, uh, yeah. <laughs> barbaric heraldry of, you know, crown skulls and, and vultures grabbing babies and and I mean, so that the, the, the you know the mountain Dornish were particularly 
involved a long-standing history of you know raiding and, and, um... and sort of counter raids and feuding with the the marchers so um there's there's that cultural difference as well in that they they have that history and they're on the first they're on the leading edge of contact with the rest of westeros mm. and you know the storm the, you know the marcher lords to reach the stormlands and they were the first line of defense so they have as a particular mortal history compared to you know save the salty dornishmen okay. who perhaps ha- had fewer fewer issues with that kind of conflict they probably had more conflicts among themselves and, yeah. and the like because they live so far away from the borders of the other yeah. regions yeah if you're like they're living on the shores they're yeah. extremely far from Especially, the reach and stormlands and and because of the, the dornish coast not being especially suitable for for naval operations to try to invade by sea so for the most part you'd people would have to come over the mountains and besides that i was thinking about the fact that uh and, and we also think i mean for prior to namuria dorn was divided into all these petty kingdoms it's not like you have one kingdom where you could have soldiers from the coast coming up to help them. They, it's not our problem. Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, it's, just, it's, it's just the Ironwood's problem. It's just the King uh, Fowler's problem. It's not It's not a Dornish problem. There isn't a Dorn as a, a, a nation state yet. Yeah. And, if the, and those differences in culture and terrain would be part of why they wouldn't feel as connected, potentially, um, uh, yeah. those developments. The sandy ones are the desert folk, which you can tell by the name. It seems like they would probably have the most, quote unquote, original first man heritage, given the Andals would be the least interested in that territory. So you agree with that? I would agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So the Andals have been fairly rarely in the mountains. And then when the Roynish showed up, I mean, obviously, uh, prior to the Roynar showing up, uh, I guess they would also have been more first manish. Although, again, being coastal, I mean, even if they don't have, there might have been more contacts with other people for trade and so on, and there might be more mixing that way. But, uh, yeah, the desert people are probably the most first man hmm. in appearance. Or, or Obviously, the idea is after thousands of years of, of some selection, they are fairly dark as well. And they must, I'm guessing there's not a lot of uh, eel like people from the real time who, uh, you know irish redheads out in the desert yeah. they probably thundering um pretty you know so yeah yeah you know we don't we see so little of dorn that we don't really know what their perspective is on these um these differences between them they don't oh yeah they, they don't define themselves this way that we can see but do they have these sorts of um you know, prejudices against each other. Like, I could see, you know, a salty Dornishman judging a stony Dornishman uh, pr- pretty handily. Yeah. Um, like, we see the differences yeah. from these, but they would notice a lot more differences. Like, living amongst each other, they would have, be a lot more keen on what yeah. separates their their cultures and, and things like that. Yeah. Like Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, like, like for example, like, a good example in the real world would be... Um, a lot of people would, would hear Spanish and think in a lump, like, this, this is Spanish-speaking. But within Spanish-speaking, there's massive differences of culture. I mean, you go from yes. one end to the other. I mean, there's just huge differences from, like, Mexico to Spain. It, just, just Yeah, simply. or you go into, um, for example, you think about in, like, I don't know, Brazil, something like that, where um, sure. someone who's black there um, is defined very differently than who is black here in the United States, yeah, you know, and true. whether yeah. if, if you're if you're mixed race is defined entirely differently there in their culture. And I imagine it's similar in Dorn as well. I would imagine so as well. Yes, I, they, they probably have a kind of 
grown concepts of these things and conceptualizations. I mean, how many how many think about their Andal heritage as being especially important, for example, versus just the general mountain Dornish sort of uh, reading culture is more mm. important to them, or how many of them are care more about uh, the the history of the Lords of the Wells than oh, the fact yeah. that first men. I the orphans that, would be more attached to their Warnish history. Definitely. That's, yeah, that yeah, one's yeah, a little easier, probably. You're right. Good point. Um, <laughs> it's like Spain and Portugal them, or speak different languages, but still might get lumped in together yeah. with Spanish culture, quote unquote. You know. I, I recall asking George once, and I expect it's not just like Martin, about uh, whether any of the old Warnish gods were still worshipped. Oh. And he thought that maybe, maybe, maybe some people, I'm guessing, obviously a I, he didn't have the he probably didn't have the idea of the orphans at the time, but he probably I don't know if it might have sparked the idea of the orphans, but mm. the orphans probably still you know they they still Mother Roin is still the the, the goddess for them. Yeah, that's where I can yeah. find that water um, magic. Yeah, <laughs> they're looking yeah. for the water. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> folks, if you don't recall, Yandri and Yusilla, who run the pole boat that Tyrion spends time on with Griff, they are from Dorne. They're orphans of the green blood that went back. They're like we're, they felt the call, so to speak, and and moved back to their their ancestral heritage but they weren't born there they they went back they went to the ruin they migrated there to return to their mother so to speak so yeah so this is another interesting concept um thinking about ancient super ancient dorn like even in before the the arm was broken you wonder if there was still active trade going back and forth it may have been too prehistoric for things like that but we don't want to limit ourselves on thinking that just because it was super old that they couldn't have long-range trade because there is examples of things like that in the in the ancient sure. world as well i mean there weren't as many oh, things yeah. that would be traded but <laughs> still it happened no i mean one of the most fascinating things about if you study um you know bronze age europe is that the, the incredible networks yeah. Uh, the way things could uh, come from, you know, things from uh, amber from the Baltics found all the way down in the southern tip of Italy. It's just uh, crazy, crazy what, what what our ancestors were able to, to achieve and how how networked they were. I mean, the whole idea of uh, the Bronze Age collapse theory, it partly turns on the idea, but it was economically driven collapse of, mm. of, of trade that led to all these problems. Uh so no no I, I there definitely would be trade. I there, there is the whole thing about the first men like when you go as far back as the first men the idea that they didn't really have boats yeah or but they, they needed the land bridge to get across but I mean and I, I believe the war is a fire. It has been a long time since I I flipped through it but longer still since I read I wrote it. So, <laughs> yeah. I believe it has some stuff about about the Ironborn possibly having. I recall there's some questions about like how will the Ironborn, if they're supposed to be related to the First Men, were they the first to come up with ships and so on? And there's this whole thing about that aspect of things about um, when were ship, when was naval trade or, or really a thing? Because Dor would probably have to depend between would have to depend a lot on that at some point, especially when particularly hostile periods of time with with the uh, the rest of Westeros. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Let's get a little specific with some of the foundings of some of these individual Dornan houses. We've got a couple of quotes to play with here. North and east, beyond a great gap in the mountains that provided the shortest and easiest passage from Dorne to the Reach, House Fowler carved its own seat into the stony slopes overlooking the pass. Skyreach, that seat became known for its lofty perch and soaring stone towers. 
At the time, the pass it brooded over was commonly known as the Wide Way. Today we name it the Prince's Pass. So the Fowlers took for themselves the grandiose titles of Lords of Sky Reach, Lords of the Wide Way, and Kings of Stone and Sky. Well, when you get to take the, the best places, no one's going to stop you from calling you whatever you want to call yourself. Yeah, that is even the Wide cool, Way. Yeah. That is a pretty cool title. But this makes sense. This is why I brought up trade, because obviously trade going back to Essos is a speculative thing, um, something we can kind of imagine, but without a lot of specifics. But trade through... The two major passes of Dorne is a certainty. Uh, how what level it existed back then is not a certainty, but it's certainly a thing now. And obviously, that's why those places were taken by powerful interests back in the days, because someone recognized the value of controlling the pass uh, and the other pass that the Ironwoods took, which we'll discuss in a second. So that's uh, pretty similar. Like, think along the lines of House Frey. They actually built the crossing themselves with a bridge, and this is more recent. But it's the same concept. They control the path, and you get to tax people, do whatever you want. And, well, this, the Fowlers have been holding on to that for who knows how many thousands of years. And with that comes uh, a lot of prestige and, and wealth and, and um, entrenchment, I guess you could say. Let's go on to the next quote about the Ironwoods. In a similar vein, far to the east where the mountains ran down to the Sea of Dorne, House Yironwood established itself in the high valleys and green foothills below the peaks and seized control of the Stoneway, the second of the two great passes into Dorne, one far steeper, narrower, and more treacherous than the wide way of the west. Well protected and comparably fertile, their, their lands were also well timbered and possessed of valuable deposits of iron, tin, and silver as well making the Ironwoods the richest and most powerful of the Dornish kings, styling themselves the Blood Royals, Lords of the Stoneway, Master of the Green Hills, and High Kings of Dorne. <laughs> the Lords of the Ironwood in time ruled North Dorne from the mountain domains of House Wild to the headwaters of the Greenblood, though their efforts to bend the other Dornish kings to their will were seldom successful. That's kind of what Elliot was referring to before about the... So many petty kings in Dorne, perhaps even more so in other places. Um, so many natural barriers and borders that uh, enable these kingdoms to form independently and hold. They have like really strong home field advantage, you could say. But the Ironwoods had something that's um, un a little unusual is the silver mines. If you've been follow, happen to be following my Crusader King streams on Friday, we're currently playing House Ironwood. And those silver mines are pretty nice in the game, too. But <laughs> sticking to the real canon here, uh, talk about another fancy title. Jeez, Blood Royals, Lords of the Stoneway, Master of the Green Hills, High Kings of Dorne, Lords of House Ironwood. So... Just as a quick aside note here, Ellie, you guys have a game, an RPG you've been running for a long time, and a lot there's a lot of a lot to do with Dorne in there. Are the are the Ironwoods kind of a, a major figure or major uh, presence in this? Yeah, they have been in the past of the game. Uh, they 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 led the rebellion against the Dorne, uh, the, nice. the Dorne, <laughs> uh, after basically after the whole. Uh, fiasco of uh, the Dornish occupied conquest by Daeron and the sort of the occupation and and so on. So uh, yeah, they have been definitely, we have definitely paid attention to the idea that if you're a family who were once kings and yet you're still hundreds of years later calling yourselves the Blood Royals, uh, you definitely have an ego, you definitely <laughs> have a lot of pride, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you're going to cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> and that's what we've seen, right? Throughout their history, they do. They join the Blackfires and things like that. They're 
They've been looking for their yeah. ways up. They've been pretty peaceful in recent generations, I suppose, but you never know what will change. I, I'm I'm hoping that there's more time spent in Dorne uh, in the future novels and that we get a little more backstory in some of these things. I'm, I'm sure you're right there with me. <laughs> yeah. Dorne is a uh, very popular Linden Eye, so yeah, absolutely. Nice. Now, here's a really interesting question. This is a difficult one. Not difficult isn't challenging, but difficult because we just don't have that much information, but it's, it's more of an imaginative question. One theory that's proposed within the histories is that the Sea of Dorne used to be landlocked. It was a, a proper lake, uh, maybe even fresh water, and then as the arm of the same perhaps forces, whether magical or not, uh, that rose the seas that broke the arm also flooded the Sea of Dorne and made it a, a part of the narrow sea. If that's the case, if it was landlocked, that means the spot Ironwood is located would have been a lot different back then and potentially even more powerful than it is now. They would have had a freshwater lake <laughs> nearby as yeah. well as the silver mines and the mountain pass. Yeah. I don't know if all that would have carried over so long, but it's something to think about that's kind of neat to imagine that all being landlocked. That would have been more, there would have been more land bridges. There would have been even more land routes across to Essos too, which could have been powerful. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting actually, yeah. I mean, then, then you could easily see with the idea of a, you know, that the Meesters may not have their history right as far as Dorne being the first place. They could have just easily gone into the Stormlands yeah. Yeah, at the same true. time and spread in both directions. Um, okay, so moving on to the our last quote around the formation of different Dornish houses. This is a very peculiar, kind of under-the-radar mention of a different style of government. Um, pay close attention, folks. This is cool. A second rival High King of Dorne also existed during the times of the First Men, ruling from a great wooden Moton Bailey castle on the south bank of the Green Blood near Lemonwood, where the river flows into the Summer Sea. This was a curious kingship, for whenever a king died, his successor was chosen by election from amongst a dozen noble families that had settled along the river or the eastern shores. The wades, shells, holts, brooks, hulls, lakes, brown hills, and briars all threw up kings who ruled from the high hall amongst the lemon trees. But in the end, this curious system broke down when a disputed election set the royal houses to warring against one another. After a generation of conflict, three of the old houses were wiped from the earth, and the once powerful river realm had shattered into a dozen quarrelsome petty kingdoms. That's super interesting. It's like instead of Naga's bones, they meet around the lemon tree. It's a lemon's moot. Yes. It's like a democratic, like a sort of proto-democracy sort of great council situation did this uh did this pique your interest when you when this part was uh written or do you have any thoughts on this i find it really neat oh that, that was really interesting that george drew that out there that was uh that was definitely that was george's uh, material mm -hmm. that uh, uh it was a, a surprise to us as anyone else it was never been hinted before prior to this in in the book so we had no idea and george hadn't mentioned anything like it so uh i presume he kind of came up with it in the course of, of basically writing the material, he wasn't necessarily something that was always present in the lore, but it was created as needed. But it, it's, it's a cool idea. I mean, um, elective monarchies uh, have existed. Um, the Holy Roman Empire for a period of time was officially uh, uh, an elective monarchy, and then kind of sort of not anymore when the Habsburgs has kind of kept being elected over and over again. But... Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it makes sense uh, that it, it's a thing that was tried. It worked for a while, but it kind of 
wrote down as I think most elective monarchies have had a history of having uh, breakdowns mm-hmm. of this kind where it just doesn't function properly anymore. And, and there's this whole thing about balancing the the power between the electors, those you know, and, and then the king. I mean, if you're beholden to to all these people who have elected you, can you really rule properly? Um, mm, yeah. So, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, because it's like this is with so few votes, every one vote means so much. You have people bribing and cheating and threatening, and yeah, it's not like a. Tr- that's why it's not a true democracy. It's more a proto democracy, and and um, it, that's similar to like in at the king's moot, they just flat out have that as part of it. Bribing people is just part of your presentation. You're like, how much loot are you going to give us? So they're a little more open with it there. I'm not saying they solved the problem because <laughs> there's a lot of issues with. Yeah. With in that, modern but... democracy, we don't have any bribery <laughs> or cheating or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but it is fascinating to think about that. And we wonder, one of the reasons I uh, really wanted to point at this is Shay has earlier mentioned of great council is something that, comes up several times in history, several examples of it. Yeah, and and the TV show portrayed it as part of the ending, which doesn't mean it will be part of the ending, but there's a strong chance it'll there will be a great council in the books um because of all the setup. And this to me is a little bit of that. Um as well as some really interesting world building. Yeah, this is what is is this George saying that they're going to have a great council but it's not going to stick. It yeah. <laughs> that's just like that. Nah, like, it's a whole yeah. rule but then there's back to it. It'll be disputed. Yeah. Yeah. What are the chances it wouldn't be disputed? <laughs> so Dorn's geography with respect to not knowing when on the timeline some of these houses were founded versus when the arm was shattered versus whether the arm was shattered all at once or gradually there would have been big changes in the region like House Drinkwater and House Tallinn, for example, are like right where the arm would have been extended from. So it's possible they were they went through some serious upheaval. <laughs> if things change like, oh, my goodness, uh, we have a coast here now. <laughs> we were the Swiss mm-hmm. land and now it's just we have waterfront property now. And that's also relevant for the Martells, because notice throughout all this discussion, the Martells haven't really been a part of it because they weren't really around. They may have existed in a minor state that wasn't notable, but they didn't really become a big deal till the Andals came around, which is different than a lot of the other major houses in other regions. And it might reflect the changes in geography, at least in part. I I wouldn't guess that that's the major factor because they're so far apart, but... Consider where the location of sun spirits when you consider rising and falling sea levels. It possibly would have been closer or farther out. Who knows? Um, That's an interesting consideration for these things. So, Elio, I really love how this is presented. It's presented with both the high magic version and the rational real world familiar version. It's kind of makes sense to people who have looked into this even a little bit. It feels kind of like it could fit. But like so many things with George... He likes to use real world stuff, but he leans into the magic. Like it's more fun when it's magical. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. No. Very true. So let's have the quote, and then we'll talk about it. The children fought back as best they could, but the first men were larger and stronger. Riding their horses, clad and armed in bronze, the first men overwhelmed the elder race wherever they met, for the weapons of the children were made of bone and wood and dragon glass. Finally, driven by desperation, the little people turned to sorcery and beseeched their green seers to stem the tide of these invaders. And so they did. 
gathering in their hundreds, some say on the Isle of Faces, and calling on their old gods with song and prayer and grisly sacrifice. A thousand captive men were fed to the werewood, one version of the tale goes, whilst another claims the children used the blood of their own young. The old gods stirred, and giants awoke in the earth, and all of Westeros shook, trembled, great cracks appeared in the earth, and hills and mountains collapsed and were swallowed up. And then the seas came rushing in, and the arm of Dorm was broken and shattered by the force of the water, until only a few bare rocky islands remained above the waves. The summer sea joined the narrow sea, and the bridge between Essos and Westeros vanished for all time. Or so the legend says. I love that. Or so the legend says. And then it moves into the more rational explanation, which we'll get to in a second. But So this is the so-called hammer of the waters, which, if it was a magical event... Wow, a thousand captives and or the blood of their own young. What are we supposed to do with that? That's incredible. I mean, that's some that's some serious business. I mean, on one hand, you kind of need we've never seen the children or the green seers do anything so massive other than this, if they even did it. So, for example, I mean, in all the discussions of children fighting the first men, there's no like mini earthquakes or landslides we don't hear anything about that it's not that it didn't happen but we don't hear anything about it so this seems kind of like maybe several steps above what we've seen their capacity be but if you mix in this whole sacrifice business this mass blood sacrifice and that maybe explains it but that could be a de facto explanation they're like well they must have sacrificed a thousand people to make this happen that's the only way it could make sense what do you think uh how do you look at this elio um yeah, it's very mysterious. It's all this ancient history stuff. So it's 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 no longer written lore. It's based on oral legends that eventually got thousands of years after the fact got written down by Andals. Again, it is more fun to think that the magical version of events is correct um, than the rational version. It is a setting with magic. It is a setting where there was great magic in the past. Uh, so I could see it, and I think you know the the reference is sort of pretty casual of the sacrifices yeah. <laughs> of um, ties into the the power of blood in in the setting. A lot of the you know blood magic definitely has power, definitely drives its power from blood. True, true. Uh, so you, uh, sacrificing a thousand people or a thousand children, children of children. <laughs> um, would be a, a a very powerful thing. Would it be enough to do this? The other thing I would think about, you know, the whole giants awaking in the earth. I mean, we have that in the Horn of Jormund, and there's yeah. a very mysterious thing there. Like, what is the, what is, what are these giants in the earth? Is it just a term for, a metaphor for earthquakes? Is there, is there more to it? Very curious. If it did require a thousand people or children to sacrifice, that could explain why they didn't do it sooner. Uh, either resistance to to sacrificing their own people within their their own culture, or the yeah. the actual like we don't have a thousand captive humans yet. <laughs> we, we're still working on yeah. that. <laughs> that wouldn't be something you could just whip up in a week or two. Like yeah, let's just go grab a thousand people. I mean, the children were outnumbered. How do they even take captives? Like what are they yeah it's hard kind of difficult like are they feeding them like i don't know it's a little bit hard to swallow but not entirely like because it could be the number could be exaggerated maybe they just had to sacrifice a few people that's 
very believable. And then you take what the show gave us, portraying like the creation of the other through the children, something we've we've long suspected is a part of the book canon as well. Well, that's a good example of extremely high magic, which which makes giant tidal waves and breaking of earths a lot more plausible in terms of what their magic allows. And this is why I wanted to talk about the Rhinish water magic, at least at least to rope it in a little bit, because that's kind of what it sounds like more than anything, like giant floods. Like that's the closest we have to that, I think. Um Am I missing you know, something? a couple thoughts. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah. One is uh, the, you know, it was, I, I, I don't even know how involved the children were with the building of the wall. And that was probably a much longer term project. But the supposedly they had some magic, wall, magical involvement. Right. It yeah. certainly has, seems to have magic tied up in it. Yeah. And the volume of water in the wall is enough to fill a lake to 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 overcome barriers mm. with waves if it were to happen in some sort of sudden manner it also could be that it went mm. it went farther than they meant it to right like it, it if there was an interior lake in the first place and a small barrier was broken down that let the ocean rush in it might have had a bigger impact than they intended from their original uh hammering you know maybe they thought it was a chisel and uh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not like they would have done this before, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, all right, let's have the second half of the quote here so we can we can expand on the idea a little more. Most scholars do agree that Essos and Westeros were once joined. A thousand tales and runic records tell of the crossing of the first men. Today, the seas divide them, so plainly some version of the event of the Dornish, some version of the event the Dornish called the breaking must have occurred. Did it happen in the space of a single day? However, as the songs would have it, was it the work of the children of the forest and the sorcery of their green seers? These things are less certain. Archmaester Cassander suggests elsewise in his Songs of the Sea how the lands were severed, arguing that it was not the singing of green seers that parted Westeros from Essos, but rather what he calls the Song of the Sea, a slow rising of waters that took place over centuries, not in a single day and was caused by a series of long, hot summers and short, warm winters that melted the ice in the frozen lands beyond the shivering sea, causing the oceans to rise. I find that very interesting. I mean, it's like the supernatural stuff is one thing, but this that's pretty accurate <laughs> to the real world in terms of how oceans and go, rise and fall is because of the glaciers. So the maesters are... Uh... They're onto something here. That's pretty. That's pretty smart. Did you guys come up with Archmaester Cassander in that book, and or or, or the I famous passage? I believe so. I, I the title of the book certainly sounds like uh, one that we would come up with. I, I I would have to. Is that is that as a, a sidebar? Yeah. To, with main tech. Pretty that's, sure. That, I'm almost certain we wrote that one. Uh, yeah, we wanted to kind of throw you know the idea that the maesters or maesters who try to figure out how things from the stories were not magic, but were actually rational things uh, that could be understood rationally. Interestingly, of course, I mean, we're talking about a pre-long night event. Yeah. And he's talking about long summers and short winters, which implies that the that he believes the seasons have been out of whack all along, or at least that far back. Um, I'm sure there are other maesters who have put forward that. They, I mean, I think the book actually references that. It does. There are maesters who say that, it, but yeah, but it, that was not the case. That, that seasons it, were regular, was, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you see, there's these different conceptions, kind of even within the maesters. There's, there's 
I like the idea that the Maesters have um, active argument about things, especially about this stuff where they, you know, they don't have carbon dating. They don't have something that they can use <laughs> to actually figure these things out. So it's all just theorizing and, and kind of mental exercises of trying to think, like, what makes the most sense. Yeah, and you, you, you figure, too, there's a lot of incentive because they really want to, at least we're presented with this notion, especially from people like Marwin, that they really want to push back against the magical stuff as much as possible. They want, they like, they almost, not denigrate it. Well, some of them do denigrate it. Someone like Lewin doesn't yeah. denigrate it so much as just kind of like, I've given up on it. Like, <laughs> whereas someone, some yeah. of the arch, hardcore right. archmasters are like, no. So it's like they have a very strong incentive to come up with these reasons. But this works because it it reflects what we know about the real world yeah. so very well and that's awesome speaking of a couple of real world examples i mentioned beringia i don't know if that's how you say it but that which is the land that used to be the bering sea it used to be a grassland steppe uh, which is neat because it, it it's kind of ironic it was open during the ice age <laughs> it's like the ice age is when you could cross it and then at other times the glaciers were blocking it so it's kind of like backwards almost so there was a limited window to cross but that's something that that pushes it towards a magical explanation. Actually, the lim the so-called limited window for humans to cross the Bering Strait uh, when it was a land bridge was still like five thousand years long. So limited is on a global time scale. So really, that's not very limited if you think about it. So it's kind of hard for me to picture five thousand, four thousand, three thousand, two thousand just years of this when it's framed as a single event that happened in one day or all at once, because I'm not sure the legends would support such a gradual thing like that. Would it really, would the story really be told this way if it was more gradual? I'm not sure. What do you guys think about that? I think it could be um, just, I don't know, thinking about like the potential real scientific explanation. It maybe could be one day, but doesn't necessarily have to be tens of thousands of years either. So mm. the way tectonic plates work, a couple of like bits of evidence in real world, which I don't know if George was necessarily incorporating this or even aware of this, but plates, there's basically three ways that they move. They can really get pushed up against each other, right? Yeah. Now like crunch mountains upward, right? Or they can be separated apart, which will cause like a dip and, or they could like shift along laterally. Well, the one where they spread apart and dip, that's called a, normal fault line mm. that's the the normal one is for them to spread apart. is that what you think this one so, probably sounds like that's what makes sense if it's okay. spread apart if there was already a relatively narrow division of the 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 difference in in sea level mm. and that was spread apart to let the and now it might not necessarily happen in one day but maybe a, a series of you know earthquakes if you will over a few years it could have happened mm. um yeah. and additionally by the way Ore deposits like silver, for example, are typically found along fault lines because either the earth ripping apart reveals them or they create areas for water to flow and, and bring minerals with them. And so we know that there's silver, you know, nearby. It, it makes sense that the fault line, we, we know the oh, so silver like is evidence you know, of a fault line. Right, right. So. Uh, now, maybe magic caused the fault line, you know, like it, it, it could be some combination of magic and actual geographical natural events. Right. Like I like to imagine if it was magic, they just like 
pushed the natural forces. Like they give him a little little boost. Yeah, you know, yeah. like they just might have only yeah. taken a little magic if it was already a narrow division of the sea and yeah. there's already fault line there. Like picture a so bathtub on. that's almost overflowing. It's not overflowing. It's not overflowing. And then all of a sudden it's overflowing. Then it's constantly overflowing. Like water is constant is pouring yeah. out from then on. Water is pouring out unless someone stops it. But you could also imagine yeah. like a whole person jumps into that bathtub and then it just <laughs> yeah. a huge wave would flow out. But then would stop afterwards. It would yeah. like stabilize. You know so. Mm. Super interesting. A lot of possibilities there. I wonder too if if we're imagining it wrong. Like, is it was it that the sea levels rose above it? Because in in some ways it's expressed as the as, as like it says an earthquake, which would, could have meant it sank. Like, did the seas rise or did it sink or something entirely different? I don't know. Maybe they maybe they tried to construct a giant ice wall <laughs> and when it melted all the water went everywhere first they tried to block the arm with the giant ice wall huh? that's huh? where the first wall yeah. was built <laughs> shouldn't build walls in the desert <laughs> <laughs> oh boy one a little piece of trivia this is not terribly relevant but it stood out to me because it's neat gray wolves which of course wolves are obviously a big part of the story gray wolves um may have been almost extinct uh, and pushed back and they survived on this Bering Sea land bridge. And then when it opened back up and climate had changed, they spread back out everywhere. So there's some evidence for that, that gray wolves, that was, that was their refuge. <laughs> so, and you know, and of course, George uh, is a big uh, supporter of wolves as well with his, uh, what's it called? Was the, the, I've forgotten the name, the wild wolf foundation, spirit wolf. I can't recall. Someone will look that up for me. <laughs> Wild Spirit Wolf Sanctuary. Wild Spirit Wolf Sanctuary. Thank you. I really didn't think it was going to have spirit in it. Yeah. yeah. So there was also Doggerland, which connected Europe to Great Britain, and that was submerged even more uh, like 8,000 years ago. So, you know, not super long ago. Australia used to be linked to Tasmania and New Guinea. Indochina was connected to Sumatra, Java, and Borneo. So these are all warming and cooling events. So we have a lot of real-world examples of uh, connections made and lost via long-term changes. Still, Texas used to be connected to the United States. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh boy! <laughs> now, now, most of those cases are obviously are not catastrophic changes, right. like Beringia and so on. They, it was over time of sea rise, generally like the ice ages and ending and so on. And uh, I mean, the, when you think catastrophic, I mean, uh, I think the Black Sea. Oh yeah. Uh, there's the theory that the the the, the stories of the flood related to the breaking of the separation of the Black Sea from. Uh, the rest of the ocean, the Mediterranean, I, I guess, uh, yeah. if I recall right. And um, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy theory, but if something like that happened, if people remembered that, that that would be like a sudden, like this, this incredible flood out of nowhere. But um, when we're talking about land bridge, I mean, unless that land bridge was, sur you know, surrounded by water and then some other walls of rock around it, but stopped, you know, it, it it is difficult to see how the the unless we want to talk about a, but the magic of the children caused a global scale <laughs> rise of seawater. Uh, which yeah. would then surely everyone around the world would have noticed. Hey, the, the ocean is kind of <laughs> suddenly went up. Um, like, hey, stop that over the, there. The earthquake <laughs> side of it, the sinking side of things, might be more accurate. But there was it was point. actually a great catastrophic. Um, and I, I mean, funnily enough, I mean, we're doing this today, uh, you know, you 
heard the story of the the explosion of the volcano near Tonga oh, and yeah. the mm. the, uh, the you know the tsunamis that have reached. You know, I think I saw some uh, footage from uh, Santa Cruz with the water really all the way. Uh, I knew it got to Australia, but wow, so jeez, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it does really have that vibe. I mean, not to make light of it, but yeah, yesterday there was a volcano in Tonga, and today it's snowing in Georgia. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, <laughs> the doom is upon us. But that is doom, like doom of Valyria level power, right? Like you're causing, well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a similar sort of natural disaster that changed oh, everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not so natural disaster. Or not so natural, right. <laughs> natural seeming. It has that natural veneer <laughs> to it. Um, and at the same time, or possibly not, the flooding of the neck happened, which is a, a subject we'll explore separately, but it's important to link these two because yeah. there's a lot of thought that these things happen at the same time when if the sea levels rose that would fit very well that it would flood other areas of the continent and this would if that's a lower yeah. sea level area then it fits pretty well do you have any thoughts on the connection between those two events or is that just to kind of speak for itself i think i think it speaks for itself i think there is some some reasonable notion that there's a connection of error Oh, I do think about the people who complain about the geography aspect of it all in the swamp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, if we get really big on the supernatural, we start to think about the possibility that even the erratic seasons are, are, are a cause of something. Well, yes. we think the erratic seasons are magical in, or uh, nature quite possibly, but not necessarily that they were, that, that was caused by the children. Uh, but, the, but certainly that idea gets floated. Now that, is where we get into the possibility of things outside the, the planet itself. That's when you get into the possibility of something astronomical events, um, moons mm. leaving or coming or going or blowing up or comets passing by or, or just weird stuff that we don't have the degrees to properly theorize on. But certainly is possible, especially when you throw magic in the mix. Um, I mean, George, George has said, I mean, there is when fans have asked him about like theories about it, it's magic. Like yeah. he, there is, mm -hmm. there is, he has no, I mean, there, you can come up with, you could, if for a fun, uh, possible cosmological explanations or astronomical explanations for, for the physics of it and how it works. Uh, but, but in his mind, it's magic and that's, yeah, that's it. he doesn't want to think about it. <laughs> and, 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 you know, like, you know, it, it, I thought Sean was talking about the tilt of the planet earlier. I, that's, I kind of think that's kind of because, I mean, the seasons are matched with the the length of night and day changing as well, and that's a, absolutely a tilt mm. thing. But so, or does that mean that the magic involved, if you want to think of it that way, is literally causing the precession, the the tilt of the planet to change erratically? Mm. That's really weird. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to imagine that happening without having you know. But it's magic, and that yep. that's that's all there is to it. So, from George's perspective, I mean, fans can try and come up with clever ways to make it work in the physical sort of reality way but but his idea this is a magical thing and i i really do believe that it is a it has something to do with the others and the long night and and all that but it at some point in the past the seasons were normal yeah and and that's a good thing to to close with an homage to yes it's real world explanations are fun they fit in some ways here but it's probably magic powering it all and that's 
from a meta perspective, George is doing his own version of what a lot of fantasy authors have done and will continue to do is to have a, a cataclysm or multiple cataclysms in the past or as part of the main story, depending on how they want to do it. Um, like the Wheel of Time, we've mentioned several times in this episode, has the breaking of the world. Um, certainly this the, the great trilogy broken earth by nk jemison has a whole lot of stuff with geology and magic and i won't be specific because a lot of y'all haven't read that yet but you should read it it's really damn good <laughs> and uh, and it will be a tv you know, show eventually too so you know even if it was demonstrated that there was real magic in the real world which you know quantum physics almost is right but, <laughs> but I, I would still try to come up with a physical explanation for it you yeah know, i might change my perspective and be more more minded to weird stuff but i would still be trying to justify or understand how magic worked within the rules of physics you know a lot of fantasy novels do that like they 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 study magic they try to f do repeatable like test it and make it repeatable like they treat it as if it was a, a science of sorts and that i appreciate that so it's kind of what you're saying there right sean yeah yeah just now my mind was spinning on the idea of how to reconcile the idea of like magic but also uh you know natural phenomenon like we've talked about how like magic maybe has a price and yeah. uh, mm. maybe even sometimes you don't realize the effects of the magic that you're doing and like the rotation of the earth, even things like the, the, the atmosphere is due to the molten core churning yeah. from the earth's rotation, which creates a magnetic field, which blocks uh, sun rays, which allows the atmosphere to form. Who knows if maybe some practice of magic affects the, the mol molten core of planetos which might have made the doom, the doom of Valyria when it might have been the result of some magic practice turning up molten lava into yeah. the, et cetera. Yeah, know, these two so. things work together. Which, yeah, it's just not like, yeah. like I used the example before, like last week that, yes, it's all magic, but like George isn't going to just have someone cast a spell and be a blizzard in the desert. It's going to make a yeah. little more sense than that. You know, it's going to be like maybe a windstorm in the desert, you know, something. And George like probably also didn't decide magic is connected to lava and that's what sparked the, you know, he <laughs> yeah, didn't yeah. do that either. Maybe a specific it, mountain, but not yeah. all lava probably. Yeah. 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 But he may grow that in his garden. My mind's going to spin off that way one way or the you other. You never know. That's right. But hey, this is from the early yeah. part of the book. This is like something I want to discuss as a side topic. At some point, we kept pushing it. I thought we might talk about it today, but the idea being that knowledge is a process, that things get added on to, that everyone is looking back on what came before and building on that. It's a really important like human concept. It's a real world concept. And I really, really appreciate that that was in the book. Uh, so whatever you wanted to say Ilya or sh first yeah. first I'll read the book. Yes. Yeah. all right before it. It, it, is, the, yeah. it is said with truth that every building is constructed stone by stone and the same may be said of knowledge extracted and compiled by many learned men each of whom builds upon the works of those who preceded him what one of them does not know is known to another and little remains truly unknown if one seeks far enough now I Maester Eandel uh -huh. nice. Take my turn as Mason, carving what I know to place one more stone in the great bastion of knowledge that has been built over the centuries, both within and without the confines of the Citadel, a bastion raised by countless hands that came before and which will, no doubt, continue to rise with the aid of countless hands yet to come. Did you write that part too? 
Yes. Nice. Sort of, but I actually kind of, I, I've never, no one's ever, so I, I, I'll read something here. Yeah, it very please. Familiar. Okay. It is said with truth that every building is constructed stone by stone, and that all great rivers are made up from many springs and streams. So knowledge is extracted and compiled by many learned men. What one of them knows is unknown to another, though nothing is unknown if one seeks far enough. Therefore, to enter upon the subject which I have undertaken, first trusting in the grace of God and of the Blessed Virgin Mary, from whom all consolation advances come, I will base my work on the true chronicles formerly brought together by the wise and venerable Sir John Lebel, Canon of St. Lambert of Liege, etc., etc. Ah. Uh, that is from... I cannot take credit. I was inspired by uh, when I wrote this by, let me see. So, oh, I see. Roy Sartre, his Chronicles of uh, the Hundred mm. Years' War. This oh, is wow. uh, when I moved from 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 the, from the United States here. I brought among the books I brought with me were a few of the books from my university classes that I found. And uh, I had a medieval history course of uh, Dr. Hugh Thomas. And I, all of the books that he had assigned are at least. Three of them are direct inspirations to certain passages yeah. uh, in the Wall of Ice Fire. Now we got to so, find the uh, other, the other two thing. Books. Actually, for start, I, uh, yeah, uh, the other thing for start uh, does actually at the very start is he talks about his idea is that to uh, what is it? Uh, the exact phrase is 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 kind of a loose inspiration for what Yandel says about his mm. intentions is um. In, in the order that the honorable enterprises, noble adventures, deeds of arms which took place during the wars waged by France and England should be fittingly related and preserved for posterity, so that brave men should be inspired thereby to follow such examples oh, that we should place on record these matters. So, cool. so Yandel's idea that that this is a that this is a didactic work, but a pedagogical work that will teach people to behave better by the example of people who came before them. Oh. Um, is is also inspired by that. I I I've, I've always uh, no one's ever. I mean, it, it's it's a blatant bit of plagiarism from that. So I, <laughs> no one's ever come across it. So I figured, you know, why not? Since you had that quote there, yeah. I would bring it up. Oh, I'm so glad you, awesome. you brought that up. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> That's so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that is really good. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit, like just off and on, how so many things are added onto like that. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was a really good uh, postscript. Oh, I, uh, <laughs> I think it's appropriate for the, the history of Westeros channel. <laughs> that that bit of medieval history. I, I mean, we I I one of the things we did when we researched writing this is I we went and kind of I I refreshed myself on first start. I looked at Herodotus and Pliny and various mm. other histories uh, just to get an idea of of how how a historic. Because I mean, one of the things one of the things that comes up about these books. Uh, this and Fire and Blood is, you know, they're not history. These historians are not very historian-ish mm. in the way that we think of historians. They're, they are, to be history is, uh, especially when Yandel tried to do a kind of a vernacular, popular-ish history, <laughs> uh, he's writing for a very different audience and very different mindset of how things work. It's not the same as, and I would guess George is using the same idea for like Gildane. They're not really uh, historiography is in its is really in its infancy. I mean, mm. we can talk about Herodotus being like yeah. the first. Yeah, I've read Herodotus. Um, yeah, it's, it's modern historian, and and oh, sorry, I, I, I mean um, uh, Herodotus is is uh, actually I was thinking of Thucydides actually. Okay. Is, is, uh, and Thucydides is very great, but he, he made up stuff all the time. He, he said so explicitly. Like, I, I don't know about this dialogue, so I'm making this stuff up by what I think was appropriate. And, you know, it's very interesting. 
But I, so to me, it's like, I think these maesters are perfectly prepared to make things up, to fit what they feel like has to be right. And it, it, you get into really complicated areas of this. And obviously at the same time, it is a work of fiction. It is a work of, um, so the balance between actual history and how a, a historian in the past would handle things, how, how they would present or understand knowledge is, is, uh, is very different, I think, from how a modern person would think about it and we certainly tried with the andal and all these various books like as you mentioned we created a lot of these other maesters and their books that we we would reference in the sidebars and so on yeah i love those <laughs> uh, we kind of came up with this idea of of having all these very very different approaches to it of, of trying to expand on knowledge and uh and it often leading conflicting and ambiguous and sometimes i mean the maesters seem to be interested in Stuff that seems aimed at 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 the uh, at the the bleachers, <laughs> yeah, at the lower class. Uh, you know, they, there's there's stuff about you know the sexual habits of people, yeah. or like why, <laughs> and it's like, well, he's he's writing, he knows his audience. Yeah, yep. yes, <laughs> that's so good. Yeah, that's really really interesting. I think it's 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 super fun to to consider how these things were made and, and to try to get in that mindset. Yeah. And it, it seems like you guys did a really good job of that. I really respect that. I appreciate that. It's I'm not an expert on all these old sources, but I have read Thucydides and I have read Herodotus, so I totally see what you're saying. And I hope uh, I hope. Uh, yeah. Uh, hope that rings true for other people too because certainly does for me and i think i think it really does i think it i think the pages i think it comes out like that i think people feel that um i think we started off in the first episode talking about the idea that you have to consider the source yes what yeah. their potential biases or holes of knowledge would be even if they're trying to be yeah. honest and so on and that's true within the main story too i mean you got you have an unreliable narrator yeah. as part of each pov too so it's not um we're, we're preconditioned to that in a song of ice yeah. and fire <laughs> and the real world <laughs> yeah actually it's, it's funny because one of the topics that had come out uh times about like the world of ice and fire like oh is it is it canon is it like really canon or not <laughs> and it's like it, it's it is a work of history within western yeah so it is canon it exists like this is what a mainstream would write it exists it's an actual thing is it right about everything absolutely not mm. i mean there are things in there that we i i like when yandel talks about a theory but the others are probably a tribe of, yeah. of savage person <laughs> like, mm. uh, I, I know that he's wrong yeah. <laughs> everyone knows that he's wrong yeah. he just doesn't know it yet or when he says so, giants are uh, extinct we're like we saw them <laughs> one exactly. one spoke exactly so I, I thought that we were pretty clear with those things like of course not all of this can be right but it is it yeah. is a work of it is a work of what a maester actually would believe in Westeros. Yeah, it's very is authentic it, in that way, yeah. Is it canon that Joffrey is Robert's son? Is that canon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like just the history idea, books will probably is, you know? say yeah, that, the, or maybe the, not. The, genealogy, the official genealogy has that, so but that is, it is canon that the official genealogy <laughs> <laughs> I remember people who would argue that John is... Ned's son, because that's what it says in, in the appendix, you know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, well, yeah, uh, that's okay. well. He he did raise him. He is his father, but his sire. Did the appendix <laughs> define son. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. How do you mean son? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yes. Well, that was awesome. I'm glad we got this this postscript added on to this episode because this is this is going to probably end up being one of the best parts. <laughs> yeah. And with that, let's leave it there. This has been 
a lot of fun. We had a lot of rabbit holes as we like to do, and we had an amazing and knowledgeable guest to do it with. Thank you so much for coming today, Elio. We had a nice long discussion. Oh, my, we kept you up my late. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, right we on. appreciate it. Does, no, that no, mean... <laughs> Does that mean we're still not going to speak of those living along the banks of the brimstone? <laughs> <laughs> you would like to speak to, to them, huh? <laughs> You'd like to have words with them. Like, how did you make this work? It's one thing <laughs> to live in the frigid north, but you're living next to undrinkable water. How exactly? There's a line where the mason says, we won't even speak of them. I'm like, well, why? <laughs> so again thank you elio world of ice and fire author westros.org co-founder wiki of ice and fire manager youtube channel westros uh world of ice and fire app looking forward to uh to what more comes and from from you guys and from other people just kind of discussing the books and discussing uh just the just the fandom in general it's, it's been great to see when, when, when it felt there was a time, literally, when it was dozens of us. <laughs> uh, That's great. Dragonstone, <laughs> all the way to, to now, where there are hundreds of thousands of us and... Yeah discussing it uh that that's really cool it's super cool you're right you're right it really did grow like in a way this is this whole episode is very meta because we're talking about the early times of westeros and and you're talking about the early cool. times of the fandom and yeah it really all Literal works early together yes yeah. all we're, we're just going taking everything back to the beginning today that was our goal i hope we did a good job thanks everybody for listening let me the rate we're going we're probably going to sum all this up next week <laughs> <laughs> Also, folks, keep an eye out. We'll, we'll post links to other uh, interviews that Elio or Elio and Linda have done about the world of Ice and Fire and just other topics. There's some of these are, are relevant to this or just of interest in general. Uh, be sure to check out our House Dane episodes if, you were, if that piqued your interest. And, of course, we'll see a lot of y'all next week for more coverage of the world of Ice and Fire. Thanks to those of you who came and watched live. If you're catching, the, catching this after the fact on the video or on the podcast edited version, Thanks for that as well. You can join the discussion, or rather, not during the live stream, at our on our Discord page or on our Facebook page. You can interact with us on Twitter or email, as always. If you're a patron of the show, we thank you so very much. We appreciate your support, that you're keeping the lights on for us, even as we're battling winter snow here. That's even more important than usual, isn't it? <laughs> uh, leave a rating if you uh, are so inclined. We don't ask for that very often, but it is an, an important thing in the algorithm. Spotify has recently added ratings, so we're back to mentioning that because it used to just be iTunes and certain podcatchers. Now, Spotify being such a huge player in the market, the fact that they're doing ratings now is, is a whole reason to sort of mention and that again and get involved. Worth mentioning this here, if you are listening to us off Spotify and decide, hey, I want to go rate them on Spotify, even though I don't listen on Spotify, you have to listen before you can rate. It will not show up unless you have listened, the rating button. Which I just think is F good. It's a great, great thing, but just so you know, it, it, that's why. It is a real pain. Like, it's not like a YouTube comment that if someone, like, writes a slur, you could just delete it. I mean, iTunes will delete slurs, but if someone just says something that's flat out not true, like one of our reviews says, like, I'm a terrorist or something, and yeah, I can't respond or delete Paul's it. Aziz a terrorist. It just says that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't touch it. They probably didn't listen to any episodes. Yeah, I don't <laughs> so know. that Spotify system would probably catch that. <laughs> anyway, uh, also thanks to Nina for her notes and invaluable uh, thoughts. Uh, thanks to Joey and Jesse for the music. And my Kevin McLeod as well for the Valar Reedus intro music. Michael Klarfeld, your maps sitting behind us, looking beautiful and awesome. Uh, thanks to the Benjineer, 
for our sound quality assistance. Um, <laughs> oh no, a last minute request. Elio, we have a recurring thing on this uh, on this show. We haven't done it in quite a while. Can you please say Irish wristwatch? Three times Three fast. Three times. Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. Irish wristwatch. <laughs> it's not that's, e- that's not an easy one. <laughs> that, that is not easy. It's not easy. <laughs> yep, I'm glad that got in there. That was last second there. No uh, Here Be Dragon stream this week, so uh, we will just shout them out in general rather than a specific topic. And don't forget, give her gifts, G-I-V-H-E-R, gifts.com. Check them out. This room smells really good now. Beeswax is the way to go. <laughs> Until next week, everybody, for more Valar Reredus.